I can't record. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. I have only one copy. I would like to buy one. Eu vou falar sobre a questão do livro depois, porque como a Bloomsbury não enviou os livros físicos, a gente vai poder fazer os pedidos online com desconto e daí eles vão enviar a partir dos pedidos. Tá, então quando a gente falar do livro, eu mostro se está comigo e aí você fala, tá bom? Eu vou explicar como isso funciona. Ou talvez você possa dizer no começo. Oh, eu não sei. Ok. É só você, o que você quiser. So who's going to introduce me?
ver, atar os vínculos com Edson Fitzenreuter, né, que foi meu colega no mestrado, no doutorado também, não é? é? Que é uma pessoa que estuda com muita eficácia, muita perspicácia, muito talento, as linguagens visuais, ou pronto, de música e troca. Professor no Departamento de Artes da Departamento de Artes Clássicas do Instituto de Artes da Unicamp. E digamos que hoje, além de um dos debatedores, o Vitor já explica rapidamente o que vem a ser isso, é, ele está oficialmente a partir desse, desse encontro, né, é, ingressando como um colaborador do nosso grupo, um parceiro do nosso grupo, num projeto de pesquisa de nosso funcionamento. Então, Muita alegria, Edson, seja muito bem-vindo. Tá? Bom, então acho que, tendo dito isso, eu passo para a Simone falar como é que sucedeu esse encontro, que na verdade, ele fala encontro, mas o encontro mesmo é em setembro. Aproveito para dizer, fiquem atentos, continuem visitando a nossa página, que já está saindo novidades aí, tá? E, então, mas isso não é um encontro, a gente chama isso de diálogos, que é uma atividade que nós inventamos há uns anos, que é justamente quando alguém lança uma obra, seja individual ou coletiva, de passar essa obra e fazer um lançamento com uma apresentação dos autores e um comentário crítico por pessoas que são convidadas a ler. Né? E aí, então, é isso mais ou menos que nós vamos ter hoje. Então, nós estamos tendo diálogos. Agora, da UNIP, da SPM e de outros, de outros lugares que também devem estar aqui. Bom, a ideia é muito bem-vinda. É, partiu da Viviane, Viviane Ligel, que é doutoranda no Programa de Pós-Graduação em Comunicação e Práticas do Consumo da SPM e tem uma experiência em outros programas de pós-graduação na Europa e que nos trouxe uma bela notícia de um colega seu que queria participar, fazer contatos e parcerias de pesquisa aqui no Brasil e nos apresentou o Dominique. E assim nós pensamos, e assim surgiu esse evento, uma parceria do programa, de, são dois programas de pós-graduação que, é, que estão na base desse evento. O programa de pós-graduação daqui da Unique, em comunicação e, 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 e midiática, e o programa de pós-graduação em comunicação em práticas do consumo da STM, que é um evento compartilhado organizado pelas duas instituições, que tem duas, é, vai ter duas, duas sessões. Essa é a primeira e amanhã pela manhã, às nove e da manhã, na SPM Campus Joaquim Tato. O Domingo vai continuar falando de uma outra, mais de uma outra, um outro desdobramento da sua pesquisa, que é sobre cultura material e urbanidade. Então, eu, eu queria agradecer imensamente à SPM, o programa de pós-graduação da SPM, aos nossos coordenadores aqui, a, Maurício Silva, que não pôde estar aqui presente, mas nos apoiou nesse trâmite todo na organização, ao pessoal de eventos aqui da, da UNIP também. É, enfim, só queria frisar uma outra coisa, que eu acho que essa forma de fazermos eventos e compartilhando com outros programas é uma prática que deve se tornar cada vez mais constante. Né, Heron? A gente pode pensar <risos> em coisas também. Né, que os 
pensando, é é, pensando em convidados comuns que vão em um lugar e outro e que isso possa gerar pesquisas em conjunto. É que esse é o nosso grande objetivo. Então, que seja esse o primeiro de muitos, que a gente possa fazer mais eventos como esse. Avisando, então, a gente vai, então, passar a palavra em seguida ao Dominique, que vai fazer a apresentação, com a apresentação do seu livro, que vocês vão ouvir falar bastante, nós vamos depois dar todas as indicações de como conseguir e tal. E passamos aos debatedores, a palavra aos debatedores, debatedores que foram preparados, fizeram uma leitura privilegiada da obra antes de nós. Mas isso não quer dizer que depois não se abra o debate e todos nós possamos falar e debater e colocar questões também. E ao final, teremos um coffee break na sala 406. Certo? E são todos devidamente convidados também. Bom, a única coisa que a gente pode acrescentar aqui é que nós tínhamos a intenção de filmar, mas ele tem uns problemas nos entrevistas de último minuto. Isso, infelizmente, não será feito, mas é, graças a Aline, nós gravando em áudio, então depois podemos recuperar esse material de alguma maneira, então a gente mais uma vez agradece a todos os envolvidos e vocês como diria o jornalista, que honram com a sua presença né, é, em nossas atividades e acho que agora é passar a palavra para o Henrique eu acho que o livro, a gente pode apresentar já, né Viviane? Claro. sobre, eu estou com aqui uma cópia, estou dizendo que eu vou comprar, eu quero autografar autografar <risos> Is it okay if I explain only about the development? Yeah. Uh, no, it's just that, unfortunately, we didn't have time to bring the books physically to Brazil. Ah, foi realmente então que aqueles interessados e daí ao final é isso eu vou fazer o contato para a gente fazer ou a solicitação da versão impressa ou mesmo até a solicitação da versão digital e daí as pessoas podem optar por qualquer uma das versões com um desconto é, dado pela, pela editora a partir desse evento ou seja, é claro que esse livro está disponível para compra hoje na editora, tanto físico quanto digital, mas uma vez que a gente está aqui também, claro, prestigiando a obra e, e esse trabalho, então a editora vai conceder um desconto para as pessoas que estiverem cadastradas nesse evento. Então, ao final, aqueles que tiverem interesse, a gente faz a, o cadastro para daí poder fazer esse processo. Tá? É isso? Uma coisa avisar que tem aqui uma lista de presentes que circulando, quem não assinou ainda assim, que a partir dela virão certificados que vocês entenderam em seguida. Enfim, dizer ao Dominique que você é muito bem-vindo. You are welcome. You're also welcome. Um, thank you very much. Um, every time you would like to come back. First of all, I would like to thank, thank you for um, your introduction. Unfortunately, I don't speak 
a word of Portuguese. Or maybe this is not exactly accurate because I've been here for nine days right now, so I learned some words, and maybe it will become apparent during the presentation. But uh, yeah, although I couldn't understand the introduction, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you did a wonderful job. So thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you everybody for coming here on this beautiful day, because I can imagine on a day like this, maybe you don't necessarily feel always like sitting, you know, additional hours in the building, you want to go out. So I very much appreciate your time. I'm very happy to have this big audience here uh, interested uh, in the topic. I would also like to thank here Viviani for organizing uh, my stay here, which has been wonderful so far. And, and indeed, I have to say, if I have an opportunity to return, I certainly will. Um, because I have enjoyed myself, and I'm pretty sure that this is going uh, to be great. Uh, in a sense, my presentation today uh, is a presentation of, of, of this book and the research that we have done uh, um, to write it. I say we because I have uh, a collaborator, a partner in crime, Ian Woodward, a professor. So far, he has been a professor of uh, sociology in Brisbane, in Australia. Um, but it's, as we speak, he's literally right now moving to Denmark to assume a professorship uh, in uh, media and uh, business studies uh, in Odense in Denmark. Uh, you know, he's one of those Australians who at certain point feels like I'm so far away, I want to be closer to certain things that are of interest to me. And Ian is a great example. Like, he really likes cities like London, Paris, Berlin, and each time he was in Europe, he's like, oh, one day I want to live here. So he had an opportunity and he uh, took the post and he will be right now closer to me because I'm based in Berlin, as you see here. So I also expect that the collaboration will be great. But anyway, this is the book that we have um, uh, published in December and we have been working on it for last, on this project for last three years. So obviously a presentation like this uh, cannot really do justice to the, to the complexity of, of the book and, and, and you know, all the effort that went into uh, writing, researching and writing this book, but w whatever is omitted or whatever feels missing to you in the course of my presentation, feel free to ask the question. I'm very much looking forward to the discussion. I will try to keep my presentation relatively short, 30 to 40 minutes, so that then we can have uh, a discussion and I will try to uh, yeah, satisfy your curiosity as much as I, as I can here. All right, so let me, uh, let me start. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe to ask people if they need like uh, regular translation or from time to time. Oh yeah, yeah. Because so the better. the general scheme in Portuguese was has been distributed, right? Or yeah, but then I will ask them what they prefer to do. Great. Uh, yeah, sure. No, só queria perguntar para vocês o que que vocês preferem na verdade, porque a gente não tem uma tradução simultânea. Eu não seria capaz de fazer. Eu nunca fiz tradução simultânea na minha vida. Então, o que que vocês preferem? Que a gente pare de tempo em tempo para uma tradução? Que vocês façam perguntas específicas? Me digam o que que vocês acham melhor? Eu acho que parar. Eu acho que Tá bom. Então, só para deixar claro, essa apresentação vai ser baseada no material desse livro. Esse livro é o resultado de uma pesquisa desenvolvida pelo Dominic... Ah, claro, desculpa. Pelo Dominic e pelo professor Ian Woodward, que até agora é, estava na numa universidade em Brisbane, na Austrália, e agora está indo para a Dinamarca. 
Então, o foco é mostrar para vocês exatamente o processo de construção dessa pesquisa e as questões relacionadas ao fenômeno da, uh, do disco de vinil. Então, eu vou fazer assim, a gente vai fazendo a apresentação e parando em alguns momentos. I will ask you to stop, so every... Every, every, other, every slide every or every now and then when you every feel like... Every now and then. All right, I will also try to slow down. <laughs> I will slow down. Um, and, yeah, I will also try to keep it um, relatively uh, simple so that the translation works. But also, whenever you feel like you would need to stop me at a particular moment, do it. Uh, and I think we have, what, around two hours for the presentation, so I think yeah. it's really fine if you feel like stopping me, maybe something is not exactly clear, then please do it, because of course, like, I very much want that uh, it works, and I'm very sorry, and unfortunately, I cannot deliver it in Portuguese, but I can only tell you that English is not my first language either. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, so, oh yeah, maybe I should just quickly say that um, I did my PhD in the United States at Yale University in the Center for Cultural Sociology. I graduated in 2011 and then decided to come back uh, to Europe. I'm originally from Poland, uh, from Krakow in Poland, um, but I decided to come to Germany, uh, collaborating with Professor Martina Lev in urban sociology, and I'm currently... Uh, um, based at um, Berlin Bart College, but also from this summer on, I will be more permanently based in Technische Universität Berlin, when I have been affiliated uh, um, as a visiting uh, researcher, and I, now I will have a more permanent uh, post as a research fellow. And yeah, so this is kind of my, uh, my academic base. Um, I don't know, this is probably... I will introduce you anyway again. Okay. Yeah, uh, então é só para contar o background, que eu acho que é interessante. O Dominic fez o doutorado dele em Yale com o professor Jeffrey Alexander, que é um professor da área de Sociologia da Cultura, e ele desenvolveu o doutorado dele uh, relacionado à cultura material e conicidade, que é o tema central da apresentação de amanhã. E... Depois que ele terminou o doutorado, ele voltou para a Alemanha, ele uh, acabou, está agora, nesse momento, terminando o pós-doutorado na República Tcheca. E esse pós-doutorado tem exatamente é, essa pesquisa do vinil e já uma outra pesquisa que ele está iniciando agora, também de selos independentes. E esse mês também ele passa a fazer parte, é, não mais temporariamente, mas permanentemente, do grupo da Technische Universität em Berlim, com a professora Martina Löw, uhum. é, onde ele vai desenvolver, portanto, essa pesquisa sobre selos independentes e essa relação, de fato, é, da, das pessoas envolvidas com esses selos no processo de consumo cultural. Okay. Ah, sim, claro, desculpa. Ele originalmente é polonês, da cidade de Cracóvia. Alright, so maybe first I will give you a, a quick background. Uh, what made us do this research, right? What was the research puzzle or a question that we wanted to answer? that kind of inspired us to, to focus on this particular topic, right? The topic of vinyl, or as the 
title of my presentation states the topic of the analog medium in the age of digital reproduction. You probably can see that there's a reference to famous uh, essay by Walter Benjamin, right, um, about the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. We thought that this is like a perfect framing in, in cultural terms of a particular uh, phenomenon that has been observed for let's say seven, eight years right now, which is the revival of analog record in the digital times. Uh, yeah, maybe I should stop here or go on. Go on, okay. And so one of the, uh, let's say, research questions that we ask ourselves, I think, first in 2010, 2011, was basically this, why has vinyl culture experienced this remarkable revival precisely at a time when the digital revolution has been completed, right? It's, it's not just, we thought it's not, we suspected and hypothesized that it's not completely random, that it happens as it does. Uh, as you will see later, it roughly started around 2007, 2008, and continued ever since. And at 2010, we, observe, we observed the, 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 the trend from the very beginning because we were personally very much interested in it. And at around 2010, 2011, we realized something is happening, right? It, it constantly goes on. Every year it doubles or triples. Like there's this, this clear increasing trend. And for us, it was interesting not only because it was unexpected and quite rapid, but also because this is the time when digitalization really means full-scale virtualization, right? Everybody is online, everything is online. The consumption of music shifts almost completely uh, to the virtual sphere, right? Things like Spotify start completely dominating the music consumption. And at the same time, exactly when these things kind of, you know, enter the market full-on, something like this happens. Right? So for us it was a paradox, but at the same time we thought it's not accidental. This, this kind of timing uh, was not random. That's what we were thinking, that it's not uh, completely random. So in a nutshell, in, a, in the shortest way we could say, why analog, why now? Why this particular technology? Why this particular kind of consumption? And why now? Another way of stating this question is how could an old and apparently obsolete medium such as the vinyl record possibly withstand and now gain some sales ground against the tide of digitalization that effectively transforms the musical carrier from cumbersome physical object to weightless electronic data, right? So when you think about it, like look at these things, right? These are the traditional analog records, right? They're pretty big. Everyone weighs with the cover around 200, 250 grams. So if you have four of them, it's already a kilo. Now, I have a small collection of 3,000 records. <laughs> and I can tell you that it's, it weighs over a ton, right? So when I moved, I didn't have at that time so much, I have over 2,000, when I moved from the United States to Europe, it was still around a ton. Moving this stuff, across the ocean or anywhere, even within Sao Paulo. It's a real challenge, right? This is what we meant. It's cumbersome. It gets dusty. You know, there's a lot of problems with it. Like, I can have 3,000 records on this easily, and every one of you does, right? Like, it's perfect. It's perfectly portable, perfectly transferable, weightless electronic information, right? It's, it's this portable miracle. It's, it's just a dream come, come true. It's amazing. And we agree. Both Ian and I and all our friends who are into this kind of stuff agree. But then, well, there's something else 
going on. And before I continue, I think Viviani will translate that. Então, é, a, eu acho que a grande questão, de fato, é exatamente por que a cultura do vinil ganhou esse momento e passou a reviver exatamente na mesma época em que a gente tem essa revolução digital no seu ápice, na, na, na sua completude. Então, exatamente nesse período então que eles conseguem destacar mais ou menos 2010, 2011, quando a gente também tem a realidade do consumo musical né, em meios como Spotify, por exemplo, mas muitos outros meios digitais. Então, como é que esse, essa experiência do consumo da música analógica e por que esse analógico, de fato, volta? Né? E, e, de fato, ele, tanto o Dominique quanto o Ian acreditam que isso não é uh, uma coincidência, que não seria uh, uma explicação randômica, que de fato existe aí um encontro de questões a partir exatamente dessa completude da revolução digital que faz com que uh, o analógico volte e reviva nesse período. Né? E daí de fato a questão é como que essa mídia que aparentemente já era considerada obsoleta e ele está explicando exatamente, é relativamente pesada, né? Dos 200 gramas, mais ou menos 200 gramas, 250 gramas cada um, né? então ele está explicando exatamente que ele tem uma coleção em casa de mais ou menos... Uh, 3 mil discos que ele já tem mais de uma tonelada de discos em casa, então claro que o transporte disso ou mesmo, claro, todo o processo de escuta dessa música tem uma outra realidade que é bem diferente da realidade se a gente pensar, claro, que no nosso celular a gente tem acesso a a esses 3 mil discos da mesma, né, de fato, com uma portabilidade, uma facilidade muito grande. E, e ele falou uma coisa que é interessante, eu não sei se vocês já foram a uma loja de discos, além do peso, eles são empoeirados, eles né, têm outros aspectos que poderiam ser considerados é, não confortáveis. Então, limpar os discos dá trabalho. Né? O celular, você até limpa a telinha dele, mas de certa maneira mais fácil. Então, de fato, eles querem entender como essa, essa possibilidade né, da, do, do vinil realmente ter um, um, não só reviver, mas ter um lugar de, de privilégio de, nesse consumo musical, como é que isso acontece. Yeah, so in a way, I think that the story of, of this very book, how it didn't arrive here, already emphasizes the problem with physical media, right? <laughs> Because shipping the physical media is complicated, right? It's costly, there's always logistics involved, it's bound, you know, to, to experience delays, and so on and so forth. So for, for us, it was, it was quite obvious that there are spatial limitations, financial limitations, like all kinds of limitations that simply go with physicality of things. And in this context, digitalization, like, offers this incredible move towards the immaterial, 
right? So there's a juxtaposition of the material with its own particular characteristics, properties, qualities, and the digital, the immaterial, which is overwhelmingly our, our primary environment right now, in a sense, right? The way we work, the way we consume entertainment, things like that. So there's a juxtaposition of the material and immaterial. And in a way, this is what our book um, explores, and hence the subtitle, the analog record in digital age. Uh, we think that it's not just about the analog, it's about the analog in the digital context. And this is what cultural sociologists, at least in the tradition that I, has been, uh, I have been trained in, call the binary, right? The, the culture often works according to certain binary codes. And for us, this was, again, a, a very interesting example, like how those binaries can actually work and structure our practices and our understanding of, of, of culture and our consumption of culture, valuation of culture. So, uh, one more uh, word about the book, about the structure of the book and, and how, uh, how we imagined it. And I think, in a sense, this structure also will guide uh, my presentation uh, today. And so, basically, what we wanted to achieve uh, is to show that there are different dimensions right, to this phenomenon. That you can approach the analog record, the vinyl, as a cultural phenomenon that has different dimensions. And it's the combination of those dimensions that produces particular effects. For example, revival of analog record in the digital time, in the virtual times, we could say. The, the first chapter provides kind of a historical background, and I will be talking about it in a second. And, and it plays kind of on this meaning, double meaning, or at least double meaning of vinyl, uh, as a record, something that records music, but also something that can be approached as the record of culture, right? When it's considered collectively, then you can say, well, this represents culture, right? Not only musical culture, it represents people's tastes, people's attitudes, ways of life, entertainment, lifestyle, life world, or what in Germany is called Lebenswelt, all these things, right? And I think, for this reason, it's not accidental, uh, a lot of records that were released in South America have this thing, disco e cultura, <laughs> right? For me, it was very interesting when I first discovered it. I was digging for records in Argentina uh, three years ago for the, for the first time really consciously. And I realized that a lot of records have it. And you know, when you're in Germany, France, or England, you don't see it, it's, it's not there. You have the label, like for example, this one is a label which is called Estudio Eldorado, maybe some of you know it, right? So there is a, there is a logo of the label, but there, there was always this thing, Disco e Cultura, and in, in Spanish it's very similar, right? And I, re and I speak a little bit of Spanish, enough to understand what it meant, right? That, that there was this association that this is actually culture. And for me it was a great discovery, because for, for us as we were working on that, we realized that we're not talking about some subculture that really we can probably say something deeper about culture, right? Analog, analog records are culture, right? They create culture, they expression of culture, uh, and so on and so forth. So the first chapter kind of taps into this. The first chapter tries to narrate this story and show how record uh, is a record of culture. And we do it in a cer certain historical perspective, uh, namely from the late uh, 40s when vinyl record in this format was first introduced until now 
we, we show something which in anthropology and sociology is called a social life of things, right? There is a certain cultural biography or a social life to those, to those things. So this is what we do in the first chapter. And then we look at vinyl from different points of view as a particular kind of medium, right? A particular kind of object with physical characteristics that we call qualities and entanglements. Qualities in a sense that there are certain properties, physical properties of this thing. And entanglements, because you can only listen to it with a turntable, right? And then you can hear it only when you have a proper amplifier and a speaker. You can also produce those things only if you have particular machines, and so on and so forth. So these things never exist in isolation. They are always entangled in all kinds of technological arrangements. But they also uh, entangled in economic and social arrangements. And this is what the next uh, chapter is devoted to, namely to vinyl as a commodity. Right? Something that functions as a product that is created to be bought and then maybe traded and exchanged. So there's a lot of stuff here that can be talked about in terms of financial value and different kinds of markets within which vinyl exists and circulates. And then finally, the last uh, substantive chapter is about how vinyl is a part of social and cultural scenes. Just like this object cannot be disentangled from other objects in production and consumption, so we cannot really think about it you know, in isolation from specific social scenes. And we also realize that it's very much connected to urban spaces. It's a cosmopolitan slash urban thing, right? That exists in particular locations, particular connections, uh, which can be understood as scenes or what we also call trans-urban connections. And uh, we realize that vinyl is a kind of totem in the Durkheimian sense for these scenes. And this is what the, the fifth chapter is about. And finally, we, we conclude that uh, when we put all these things together, when we, when we see that vinyl experiences this analog revival right now, it is something more than just a commodity or just a particular medium or just a thing. When you put it together, you realize that it's actually something of an icon. Right? That it's cultural icon, right? That these things are culture, they constitute culture. So there's something more to it. And we try to answer the question, what is it that makes it something more? So maybe this is where I should stop now. <laughs> Sorry, I went a little bit too far. Claro que eu não vou conseguir traduzir tudo e falar tudo. Mas tem uma questão que ele falou antes de começar a apresentar o conteúdo do livro, que eu acho que é interessante que é o fato, claro, de entender é, os limites é, que existem em relação à mídia física em si e em relação ao, ao virtual, porque claro que a gente sabe que existem limites financeiros, existem limites é, mesmo de transporte que estão relacionados. A gente tem conversado bastante com pessoas aqui no Brasil sobre a questão do vinil e com certeza uma das questões que mais aparece como é, não só financeiro custo, mas financeiro uh, também pensando em impostos, em trâmites aí de, né, de como esse material de fato se constitui em relação ao imaterial. Mas aí acho que uh, fazendo essa relação de fato com o primeiro capítulo do livro, o que é importante não só o vinil como uh, uma gravação, né, como uma forma de você gravar essa esse material, essa música, mas também, de fato, essa visão histórica, eles vão desde os anos 40 até, claro, 
confundir quando ele falou de uma sociologia da era binária. É isso mesmo? Ah, sim. Verdade. Ele falou que exatamente nessa construção entre o material e o imaterial. Então, assim, se aqui você tem o material, você também tem o imaterial e que essas, esses fenômenos eles estão acontecendo juntos. Então, da mesma forma que antes nas questões aparece por que o vinil ressurge exatamente nesse momento em que o digital é tão relevante, da mesma forma a necessidade do material ela também existe junto com essa realidade da experiência e do consumo imaterial. Então, por isso essa visão binária, exatamente. É, então, essa história que eles vão contando do formato do vinil, do King Format, ela vai mostrando, de fato, que não só é uma forma de gravar essas músicas, é, mas sim é uma forma de gravar e mesmo de colecionar cultura. É, isso aparece de diversas maneiras, mas uma coisa que é, o Dominic comentou assim que ele chegou aqui, que ele viu o primeiro disco e que ele viu escrito Selo é Cultura e que ele comentou que tinha achado isso tanto na Argentina quanto na Colômbia. É, então, essa visão de que, de fato, essa materialidade aqui não contém só música, mas contém cultura. E mais para frente a gente vai mostrar um exemplo maravilhoso que a gente teve foi uma experiência inacreditável de conhecer essa pessoa aqui no Brasil que mostra exatamente isso assim que o valor cultural dessa dessas gravações mas dessa mídia assim ainda está presente em diversas maneiras aí né tanto de praticar cultura de consumir cultura de produzir cultura Eu acho que isso é muito relevante quando eles trazem essa reflexão e daí a partir dessa reflexão é que surge de fato a um desenvolvimento para entender a mídia e daí a mídia, tanto a forma de você lidar com ela, então é importante você saber como né, você usa o disco, como é que você toca o disco, existe a questão das rotações, existe a questão né, da, das agulhas exatas para você usar em cada disco e também todo o aparato que está relacionado com isso, não só para você ouvir, mas até, por exemplo, o próprio toca-disco, a, né, a aparelhagem que você precisa para poder ouvir, então existe toda uma questão não só... É, desse processo de, de como você ouve, mas de fato também todo o aparato. E daí as qualidades específicas desse objeto vinil. E daí acho que tem também uma discussão que ele vai falar um pouco mais para frente da questão do som especificamente, que acho que é uma das grandes discussões quando se fala de vinil versus digital, mas que essa, esse objeto também tem qualidades que vão para outras qualidades, então esse objeto ele tem uma capa, ele tem um encaixe, ele tem um plástico, um papel, né? ele conta uma história, então assim, existem outras questões nesse objeto que também fazem parte desse, é, desse fenômeno. E daí, claro que toda, tanto essas qualidades quanto todo esse aparato levam também a uma análise desse fenômeno como mercadoria. Então, claro que ele tem um determinado valor, ele tem um determinado mercado e essa análise é relevante até para a gente entender é, como é que as pessoas atribuem valor é, ao vinil e como é que esse valor de fato se reproduz, como é que esse mercado vai se constituindo. E, e o que é interessante, de fato, quando ele chega aqui na, 
na discussão totêmica sobre é, essa produção da cena a partir do vinil, a gente percebe principalmente em espaços urbanos como é que essas cenas vão se constituindo, então as lojas vão surgindo, os clubes também cada vez mais com visibilidade para esse tipo de prática especificamente, né? então como é que essa a cena de fato se torna relevante. E a, a partir da, dessas análises, tanto da mídia quanto do objeto, da mercadoria, o que eles percebem que eles a, de fato estão diante de um ícone, um ícone, portanto, que não se torna somente, é, como ele falou logo no início, uma subcultura pertencente a um grupo específico, a um estilo de vida, mas de fato um ícone que mostra essa relação que a gente tem, tanto daí, de novo, voltando, binário, tanto com o, o imaterial quanto o material, tanto com o digital quanto o analógico. É, só, é, quem é que tinha feito a pergunta mesmo, Sobrinho? É, eu acho que essa questão do binário né, tem a ver com a discussão sobre o que é analógico e o que é digital. Então, está confundindo também por isso. Pelo termo, binário. É, binário nesse sentido. Quer dizer, talvez uma sociologia que vai além da sociologia binária. Uma outra sociologia para pensar esse outro fenômeno. Eu não sei se para todo mundo é claro o que é totem. Sim? Ok? Eu não sei se é um bom momento para apresentar um pouco sobre esse binário, porque, obviamente, ele funciona no physical uh, level, for example, the, the analog sound is a continuous wave, whereas digital sound is a sampled uh, reproduction of sound. So this is also quite different concept of like how sound is produced and reproduced, but maybe we can talk about it uh, later. Uh, uh, for now, I would just uh, very briefly summarize that in a way what this structure shows you is that the, the, the vinyl as this particular cultural icon has a, a deep history, right? It has a there's a particular heritage, there's a particular genealogy, if you wish, in this kind of almost Foucauldian sense. There's a materiality to it with physical properties, there's phenomenology, there's economy, there's sociology, right? There are all those aspects and, and we thought that the, in order to understand this object you have to integrate those perspectives, right? You cannot just isolate it uh, because, okay, this is what economists do and this is what sociologists do. Like, you have to put it together. Unless you put it together, you have only partial understanding of the phenomenon. So, first let me uh, crunch some numbers and present uh, around eight slides that would uh, kind of try to make sense of this revival of the analog record in the digital age from, this, from the quantitative point of view, right, in terms of some numbers. And then, after that, there will be a second part of the presentation, which will be more about qualities and meanings, right? So we will go beyond numbers, beyond objective indicators, and we will we'll try to make sense of it. What are the meanings uh, of this whole phenomenon? So, uh, just, yeah, to give you a very brief, there's this plenty of reports like that. This is just the one uh, that appeared in the UK at the end of 2014, because this was, like, one of the most incredible... Uh, years in terms of this increase of the analog sales and according to BBC more than 1 million vinyl records have been sold in the UK alone uh, in this particular year and it was uh, noticed that it's the first time the milestone, milestone has been achieved since 1996 right so you can see that it was a kind of gap 
right? We needed 18 years, really, to match previous sales. And you will see in the first slide that in, indeed there was a kind of a slump. And, and yeah, as people say, the figures uh, mark a largely unexpected resurgence, right? That's very interesting. I already talked a little bit about it. Unexpected resurgence in industry now considered to be dominated by the digital. In terms of uh, money, uh, another interesting observation is that only five years ago this business was worth around three million pounds a year. This year it's going to be worth 20 million pounds, right? So in, uh, in a sense this is the fastest growing format, music format in terms of sales because the market is just so saturated right now with the digital consumption that this kind of increase is really quite incredible. Um, and here you have a graphic representation of what was happening over years, right? So for quite a long time, uh, basically the 90s, uh, up until 2008, not much was changing. In fact, this period of mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, 2007, was particularly low, and this, this is now considered the all-time low of vinyl sales. They, they have never been lower than that. Uh, and then you see, from 2008, there's a spike, right? There's this uh, quite, incredible, um, quite incredible growth, and, and we know now that 2014 was even more spectacular than 2013, which is included in the statistics here. And expectation is that the same will happen in 2015, this year, and probably the, the following year as well. So the trend continues. It's, it's, a, it's a constant, uh, uninterrupted growth. Uh, the previous one? Yeah. Só para fechar o que ele comentou em relação ao conteúdo, é que é importante entender o fenômeno de diversas perspectivas. Então, de fato, não é um fenômeno que tem que ser compreendido tanto de uma perspectiva econômica, quanto de uma perspectiva sociológica, cultural, antropológica é, e filosófica. A gente também vai ver algumas questões sobre isso. Então, de fato, é um fenômeno que tem que ser compreendido por sua complexidade, pela forma como a gente pode... É, olhar para ele né? ah, e aqui então ele mostra ah, como esse fenômeno de fato tem se tornado relevante aqui são, ah, a gente vai ver alguns números então ah, aqui no, na Inglaterra em 2014 a gente teve pela primeira vez a venda de um milhão de discos de vinil coisa que só havia acontecido uh, em 96, isso quer dizer que nesse período de 18 anos houve uma queda nas vendas de vinil e então uh, novamente a gente vê essa, esse número alcançar esse, né, o mesmo montante e, e o que é interessante que de fato a BBC coloca como um ressurgimento que eles não esperavam que acontecesse, porque de fato a indústria já era considerada dominada pelo digital. É, o que é interessante ver é que esse formato é o formato de consumo musical atualmente que mais cresce né, dentro da indústria. Então, de fato, tem uma relevância, inclusive aqui econômica. Então, era um, uma indústria que, um negócio especificamente que ah, há cinco anos valia 3 milhões de libras e que em 2014 tinha um valor total de 20. E daí, se a gente olha a curva das vendas é, desde 93, de fato, a gente percebe 
que a, o crescimento é, começa em 2008, né, que a, as vendas a partir de 2008 quase que duplicaram, né, então de 1 milhão para 1 milhão e 900 mil, e que realmente desde então esse crescimento vem se é, apresentando muito relevante, em 2013 então a 6.1 sendo que 2002 foi uh, 4,6 milhões. Então, e que 2014, como a gente viu também, já um número mais expressivo e as previsões são que esse crescimento continue esse ano e nos próximos anos. Yeah. But even though this is quite uh, incredible, we have to remember that uh, it's incredible in relative terms. And to show you uh, what, it, what I mean by this, I will give you a, a quick kind of time lapse and historical background of what were the proportions in terms of mainstream market share of different formats so that you get the feeling, keeping this in mind, how much really the market changed. So, 1974. This is, in a way, the golden age of the vinyl record. And you can see that LPs and EPs uh, comprise over 60% of the market. And you also have vinyl single here, which is nearly 9%. So basically, it adds up to 70% of the market. At the time, it can be considered and is considered uh, quite unanimously as the golden age of, of analog record. You have cassette here. It just starts uh, at that time. And Look what happens 10 years later. Cassette is 55%. It's quite dramatic growth, and it represents this push towards portability and also exchangeability of musical material, right? Because you could record stuff on the cassette. You could exchange it. It was, of course, cheaper, portable. This is the time when uh, Sony introduced Walkman, right? This was a huge revolution, in a sense, right? This is the kind of like an iPod of the 80s, right? That was a huge thing, and people are very much uh, into this portability of music. LP still is quite strong, 35%. Vinyl single, uh, a little bit down. But overall, you can see it's almost kind of half-half between the cassette and vinyl. So 84 uh, is the time when vinyl still has a pretty strong presence. But cassette already outnumbered, it has already absolute uh, majority in terms of uh, consumption uh, of music. And there's this little thing, this little red thing, right, which marks the beginning of digitalization in the physical form. Just 2.4%. Now, let's go 10 years up and look what happens. <laughs> CD has 70%, it's even bigger growth than the cassette experience the previous generation, right? And you could say it almost kills vinyl, right? Vinyl, mainstream vinyl sales are down to incredible 0.1% and single 0.4%. Vinyl single is bigger, quite incredibly, and we will talk about it, because singles were used by DJs, and DJ culture never stopped using analog records, and that's why here you can see that it's bigger than, uh, uh, than the LP. Cassette down to 25%. So you can see it's a domination of CD, and we can say that the, in, in a way it represents the fact that in the 90s we observed the first wave, what we call in the, in the first chapter of the book, the first wave of digitalization. But then something else is happening. 
CD, of course, uh, by 2004 dominates completely. Uh, LP is, is almost non-existent. Vinyl, is, uh, vinyl single is also very low. This is all-time, almost this all-time low. But then in 2012, CD, from a total domination in the previous year, in the previous time, 2004, you just go eight years up, and CD is down to 35%. Right? And you see that uh, downloadable stuff uh, becomes uh, a dominant, uh, dominant thing. The streaming, which right now I think is uh, going big, is already uh, in the chart, 8%. And we name it the digitalization point uh, uh, 2.0 in a sense. It's a second wave of digitalization, which means virtualization. And what is interesting is that at this time, uh, vinyl starts going up. You see from 0 0.2 or 0 0.1, it's 2.3. So in a way, this is this growth that I showed you before. But in the overall mainstream consumption, it's still relatively small. So this is something to, uh, to keep in mind when we're talking about the proportion of, the, uh, uh, of, of this phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Então aqui é só realmente a evolução histórica do mercado para entender como é que esses fenômenos foram acontecendo. Então em 74 a realidade do mercado era de 61% de LPs vinil e 8,8% de singles também vinil. Né? Então a gente tinha uma é, dominação de fato desse formato. O cassete ele já existia, mas ele ainda era algo é, que não era tão utilizado, então ele só representava 4% desse mercado. Né? Se, então, 10 anos depois, 7 years later, uhum. você tem daí de fato, com a introdução no uh, mercado do cassete, principalmente a ideia da portabilidade, da possibilidade de você gravar músicas nessa mídia cassete, diferentemente do vinil, e daí Sim, eu gostei bastante da ideia do Walkman ser o iPod dos anos 80, porque na verdade o iPod foi o Walkman dos anos 90, mas é uma revisão né, histórica, exatamente. Então, de fato, a gente viu uma predominância do cassete em 84, com 55%, o LP uh, vinil, então, continua representando 35%, o vinil single 7%, a gente, então, ainda aqui tem uma... É, participação de vai, 40% ainda relevante e daí uma introdução aqui ainda, claro, inicial do CD com 2% e daí indo para 10 anos mais tarde, a gente já percebe o okay, que okay. ah, que o CD de fato domina e daí em 94 ele já representa 70% desse mercado e é o que eles consideram essa primeira onda de digitalização de fato essa, uh, esse consumo digital se uh, desenvolve e, e daí sim, com essa realidade, a gente vê o cassete ainda tem uma representatividade de 24%, mas o vinil realmente ele praticamente desaparece nesse período, a gente tem somando LP e single só 0,5%, então daí a gente percebe né, a, a diferença entre uh, essas duas realidades nesse momento. You, uh, o que é music videos nesse music video is like video clips video clips mas yeah yeah video clips é exatamente em forma de DVD que se yeah yeah at that time this was also released in physical formats 
uh, right? And then later, I think DVD was also introduced. I, although we don't say it here that it's CD, but I think at that time it was CD. Okay, further? E daí sim, em 2004, você vê a consolidação né, do mercado é, do CD e, e ele então domina esse mercado. De novo, vinil aqui representa 0,4% e o cassete de fato perde também o seu lugar. Então, até esse momento é claro que já existem algumas possibilidades de downloads e distribuições, mas essa é a realidade nesse momento. Até que, de fato, de 2004 até 2012, acontece tanto uma entrada da ESIN, o que eles consideram de digitalização 2.0, né? e também esse fenômeno do, do vinil. Uhum. E, então, daí, 2012, olhando né, já mais recentemente, você percebe que há um domínio principalmente de downloads, tanto de álbuns inteiros quanto de singles, então singles 23% e o álbum 17%. Ah, você também tem o streaming que aparece já com uma certa relevância, 8%, até já falando que acredita que hoje já seja até muito mais predominante. E, e, no, e daí sim, pela primeira vez você vê o vinil voltando a crescer, então ali você tem 2,3%. E 0% de, de single, o que mostra, claro, no mercado total, qual é o tamanho desse mercado de vinil especificamente. Né? A gente tinha visto os números específicos do vinil, mas olhando para o total. Uma coisa que eu não comentei que ele falou, que é importante, nesse período em que o vinil praticamente é, caiu a zero, a gente percebe que ainda existe esse consumo de 0,5%, porque na cena eletrônica aí, os DJs continuaram a consumir vinil, principalmente singles, né, durante é, todo esse processo. Então, assim, o vinil não morreu nesse período, principalmente por causa desse grupo, especificamente que continuou continuando which means that it's based on the reports from uh, major uh, labels and major stores. And there's a whole world of underground and independent music that never reports to this, so it doesn't show up. And often it's precisely this area of the market uh, which traditionally has been attached uh, to, to analog uh, medium, punk culture, uh, all kinds of DJ cultures, uh, hip-hop culture, uh, audiophile cultures, all kinds of the markets, second-hand markets and primary markets, which simply often do not report to something like I mentioned to you before, this official charts company, right? So, so there's a typical problem in social sciences, right? How much data you get and how, uh, how significant is your data? So if you look uh, at pressing plants, such as this one, Optimal, from, from Germany, what happens there and that they uh, received 80% uh, of their orders from independent uh, clients, right? independent labels of different kinds. The trend is roughly the same. right? This is the uh, average annual vinyl production in this particular pressing plant of the, over years. So you can say that 
it's more or less the same, especially from 2011, there's this, this rapid spike. But what is important here is that 80% of their orders that they receive is from independents. And most of the time, these don't report uh, to major uh, companies such as Nielsen Soundscan data, right? So they wouldn't register that this is happening. Oftentimes, uh, record stores, for example, that uh, get uh, their stuff from independent labels also don't report, report their sales, and you could never use credit card in them. It's all cash economy or a barter economy, where you come with records like this, you give them one if it's very valuable, and you get free, for example, right? So if I come to Germany with this collection of Angolan music released in Brazil, it will be worth probably something like 30, 40 euro, which means that I can get four albums of some British rock, right? Because the market there is much more saturated with it, right? And I can simply come to the store and exchange, right? And this also wouldn't be reported. So there's this whole circulation of vinyl, this kind of underground economy that wouldn't appear on this mainstream pie. Uh, so for us, it was very important to look at this underrepresented part of the story. That's one thing. And another thing is that it was precisely often those groups or scenes, like electronic music DJs, that maintained the, the vinyl, that basically contributed to the survival of the vinyl in the lean years of the 90s, when the mainstream completely forgot about the vinyl, right? So for us, when we were researching the book, it was important to talk to these people, because for us, they were like, okay, they really stuck to it when everybody left. From the sociological, anthropological point of view, they were more authentic to us. And also, because they are generally more underrepresented, we thought it makes sense to give voice to those underground independent uh, scenes uh, that have always been with vinyl. And now also, as you can see, drive uh, the revival uh, of vinyl. It's representa os dados que são informados principalmente pelas grandes gravadoras, as majors, porque são dados feitos por grandes institutos de pesquisa como a Nielsen. E, na verdade, são poucos os dados que, de fato, vêm de origem de selos independentes, produtoras independentes. E, então, esse mercado, que é considerado um mercado underground, um mercado que é pouco conhecido, se sabe pouco os dados desse mercado, se conhece pouco os dados desse mercado. Mas é, aqui esse gráfico mostra que é, em uma fábrica de gravação é, na Alemanha, você tem é, 80% da produção vinculada a selos independentes, a produtores independentes, o que mostra que de fato, portanto, é, esses dados que não aparecem nesse mercado total, eles podem ser muito diferentes, né? uma vez que existe de fato aí uma produção né, real é, desses discos. E foi exatamente pensando nessa questão desse mercado independente e underground, que muitas vezes não tem é, registro mesmo. Né? É, eu estava comentando que é muito comum na Europa as lojas de discos não aceitarem cartão de crédito, não aceitarem nenhum tipo de controle digital. É quase como uma forma de fato de não permitir que os sistemas controlem esse, a realidade desse 
desse mercado e que muitas vezes até acontecem trocas, né? Ao invés do valor é, de fato financeiro, mas a troca de um disco que, no caso aqui, os brasileiros valem muito lá fora, né? são muitos estrangeiros que vêm para cá para literalmente garimpar as músicas brasileiras é, e levam lá para fora, que poderiam trocar um disco por quatro ou cinco discos de rock né? europeu, por exemplo. Então, é, de fato, então, uma vez que eles é, sabiam que esses produtores, esses selos não tinham é, essa visibilidade nos dados totais, eles acharam que era importante realmente, é, né, do ponto de vista sociológico, trazer voz para esse grupo, um grupo que durante todos esses anos, como a gente viu, manteve essa realidade do vinil, mesmo quando o vinil né, teve a sua queda e praticamente morreu, eles acharam importante realmente ter esse contato com esses produtores, com esses selos, para entender qual é essa realidade e foi a partir Yeah, so in a way, the story of vinyl, whether before the revival or after revival, is the story of the independent culture, and it's the story in a way of the uh, non-mainstream, underground, different or alternative path. And speaking about this, I, I, I realized one interesting thing, and uh, there's a label here in uh, Sao Paulo, uh, Uh, which is run by, by one, one person uh, with friends, uh, which releases old, obscure uh, Brazilian records. And the name of the label is called Candonga. And I was told that it could be translated as something like an alternative path. And for me, this is a, like a beautiful anthropological uh, evidence for exactly what I, I've been talking about, right? In a way, the story of vinyl is the story of Kandonga, right? It's doing things differently, or what in cultural studies, specifically connected to punk culture, is called do-it-yourself culture, right? So again, it's important for us because it's below the radar of official statistics, right? There's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't hear. This I got directly from the person who is a manager in this particular pressing plant, and this stuff is not included in mainstream statistics, and there's this whole cultural kind of anthropological aspect uh, to it, which is beautifully symbolized by, by, by the name of this, uh, of this label. And again, I don't think that this is accidental, right? The people who do it, uh, they are these cultural curators who are quite self-conscious and culturally aware. And, and this is precisely the expression of this kind of alternative sensibility. And now we're done with numbers, and I will try to delve into bits and pieces of our ethnographic data. Uh, that will precisely uh, make, illuminate, let's say, uh, these alternative meanings, this alternative path as connected to vinyl. Então, realmente, assim, essa busca dessa compreensão do vinil, ela, de fato, passa por essa realidade desses caminhos independentes, dessa realidade né, do mercado independente. É, e essa ideia até do caminho independente, nós tivemos contato com esse selo uh, brasileiro, uh, que é feito por um brasileiro aqui em São Paulo, que chama-se Candonga, é, e ele busca trazer através desse selo músicas dos anos 50, 60, 70, que de alguma forma realmente se perderam, é, não foram nunca gravadas muitas vezes, e, e é uma forma de trazer isso de volta, e, e a escolha do nome é de fato trazer a, a explicar, uma das possíveis explicações para Candonga, existem diversas, mas é exatamente esses caminhos alternativos, essa possibilidade alternativa de trazer essa realidade da música. 
e, e portanto, pensando nessa realidade, daí pensando né, nessas cenas que é, se relacionam muito com o punk, com o hip hop, e, é, que é a realidade desses selos independentes principalmente, é que eles é, construíram esses dados a partir de entrevistas, a partir de um processo etnográfico, e são esses os dados que ele vai mostrar agora para vocês. Alright, so as I said, now I will quite quickly try to go through bits and pieces of our ethnographic data, which is mostly um, excerpts from interviews and that we have conducted with DJs, producers, label owners, uh, audio engineers, uh, record store owners, all and, and consumers, of course, all people who are uh, and have been intimately connected to vinyl culture. Uh, one interesting thing is to consider what we call symbolic economy of small scale. Vinyl is something rare, especially in independent uh, uh, markets. And with rarity comes particular valuation. Things that are rare are somehow valuable or can be valuable. And this quote from Wolfgang Voigt, who is the head of the uh, well-known German independent uh, electronic music label Compact, um, interestingly uh, emphasizes that. He says that it's smaller now, of course, but it's more exclusive. We've got structures that are able to earn money on 100, 200, 300 records. So this shows you the scale of it, right? It's possible, and people are thankful for that, because it's something that is only available on vinyl, and this is working. There are still records that sell a lot, some, but not like in 99. So basically what he is trying to say here that something has definitely changed, right? In electronic music, DJ culture, in the 90s was quite good time, relatively speaking. Now, of course, part, at least part of this culture is still vinyl-based, but of course there's a lot of people who also use digital files. It's kind of, uh, kind of split. But what he uh, particularly emphasizes is that there's a certain exclusivity of it in a sense that if a record is produced only in 100, 200, or 300 copies, and that's the worldwide output, then when you have it, you can, as a consumer, you can have this feeling, oh, like I'm one of these 300 people, not 3 million people, that possess this artifact. And I don't have these uh, citations here simply because of time and space constraints, but it, it's included in the book, like young people who say, like, I like to have it, with the awareness that I'm part of this little group, right? That it's not something mass-produced, but that it's something restricted. And he used the word exclusive, but we can use other words, and people do use other words. Limited, restricted, small-scale, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of a first aspect of the whole story. So dessa análise que eles fizeram através das entrevistas, tanto com produtores, donos de é, selos independentes, gravadoras, é, donos de lojas, consumidores, é, engenheiros de som. Ah, é, uma das falas, é, o Wolfgang Voigt, ele tem um selo em, na Alemanha, um selo relacionado à música eletrônica, chamado Compact Records. Ah, ele fala exatamente o que é, de fato, né, como fala, uma economia de pequena escala, uma economia simbólica de, de pequena escala. Então, que é realmente pequeno e mais exclusivo. Então, é, existem discos que são só prensados em edições de 100, 200 
300 unidades e logo, né, eles são raros, porque somente um grupo de 100 pessoas, 200 pessoas vão, de fato, é, ter acesso a esses discos. É, isso é possível, as pessoas de alguma forma são agradecidas exatamente até por ter possibilidade, porque você não tem aquela realidade da necessidade de uma produção em massa, que também é, cria uma necessidade de recursos para quem produz maior, então os produtores podem também ter uma menor escala, né? não só os consumidores têm essa realidade da raridade, mas os produtores também têm a realidade de uma menor escala. É... E daí a ideia que, especificamente nessa realidade, as pessoas têm consciência de que elas têm acesso a algo que é o, não, que é o único, que se relaciona a um grupo pequeno de pessoas. Né? Então, é, essa visão de que se eu estou comprando esse disco, de fato, ele tem um valor ainda maior por, esse, por essa exclusividade. So this this sensibility of being in possession of something more limited, more restricted, or maybe harder to get, is particularly important in the digital context, which makes millions of electronic clones easily accessible at a mouse click. Right? It is precisely this digital context that makes the restricted availability of these products particularly valuable, or, or at least capable of being perceived as, as, as valuable. And here just another quote uh, that um, kind of emphasizes that. Um, another uh, DJ in Booker in the, in the Berlin club says that uh, this is very new actually, right? So he reflects on like how we are experiencing kind of like a new wave, a new phenomenon. It started when vinyl sales were so down, we've been talking about it, right? that labels didn't have, independent labels he means mostly, didn't have enough money anymore to make thousands of copies that don't sell. So there's an economic aspect to it, right? So they started small limited edition series, like 250 copies, to make it a little bit more interesting. There are a lot of vinyl records that are available only through 300 copies. Something like that probably is 300 copies, right? I'm pretty sure that this is the level, this is exactly the example of that. So available only for 300 copies and are really, really good. Finding those records can be, if you're a little bit behind and didn't see it at first, really tricky and a bit more expensive. So in a way, he, this is just another spin of this uh, phenomenon that the previous slide um, uh, exemplified. But when you analyze it really, you see that it's not just and only about the sensibility of having something rare and restricted, but it's also about dedication, commitment, competence, expertise, all those things, right? When he says, if you're a little bit behind and didn't see it at first, this means you have to pay attention. There's effort involved, right? You have to really stop, stay on top of things. This is not really the case in the digital world. You can access it any time. There's no such thing as delayed in the shipment of physical thing, right? There's no such thing as limited series, really, right? And if, it's, if it is limited, then like one of your hacker friends will copy it, right? Will break the... Uh, um, and it's, it's not really a problem, right? Because digital information is clonable. This is a different story, right? Here we de deal with physical copies, and if they're limited to 300, this is it. Of course, there are bootlegs, we will talk about it, but it's much harder to do. So it's much harder to crack this system. So again, it's about expertise, dedication, and commitment, right? The part of the distinction that comes with this 
symbolic economy of small scale is that you have to pay attention to it. There's this effort, there's expertise, there's knowledge, there's competence, uh, there's dedication and commitment. So uh, we interpret it uh, this way. And again, there are more, more uh, that we have more material to 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 prove this point in in the book. É, seguindo essa ideia da exclusividade, é importante também é, colocar aqui que, é, de fato, é, essas, esses selos, essas produtoras não tinham condições de produzir mais, exatamente o que eu havia falado antes, né, o custo da produção, então é uma questão econômica aqui que é relevante. É, e que uma vez que você tem essa questão da exclusividade, ou seja, você só tem 200 cópias, 300 cópias disponíveis, as pessoas que realmente é, buscam esses discos, elas têm que se esforçar nesse processo. Né? Então, a, a, você, a, aqui esse DJ ele fala, né? se você é, fica para trás, ou se você não viu o primeiro, você perde a oportunidade realmente de ter acesso a essa cópia, cópia física. É uma questão que no digital é exatamente é, contrária, porque o digital te dá um acesso ilimitado. Né? Mesmo que você tenha um acesso ilimitado, existem formas de quebrar né, os códigos e ter acesso. Então, é, esse acesso a, a, essa, a esse objeto físico, ele realmente requer aí um esforço, um comprometimento. Então, essa questão da busca, né, o garimpo que, que se fala aqui. Então, de fato, é um processo que tem um outro envolvimento, que não é o mesmo envolvimento do acesso ilimitado a 5 metros da sua mão, né? Então, de fato, yeah. <coughs> Another aspect is connected to uh, the heritage, uh, vinyl as a particular cultural heritage, and also an object that has particular uh, aesthetic uh, value of, uh, of an that can be described as elegance of an art object. And here you have the quote from uh, Australian artist and label head, uh, Lawrence English, who, who told us that the record for him is inviting. That's an interesting way of putting it, right? And he juxtaposes it with the digital medium, the CD, the, the, the physical digital medium. He says, CD case was unattractive and had no functional elegance. Whereas the LP had a publishing tradition, there's a heritage. It allows an aesthetic language to be developed and fully articulated. Today, vinyl culture becomes an art book experience. We buy because it is beautiful, just like art books are beautiful. You see, like, it's, it's a very short uh, uh, bit of data. By the way, like, we have interviews that go for three hours. Right? And look how much already is included in such a, such a little uh, excerpt, right? For us, this was always fascinating to see that. Uh, it's it's quite, quite amazing to see how, uh, how he phrases it and how he approaches vinyl, again, as this kind of uh, a, a book thing or art form thing, right? For him, it's not just about music, right? It's very interesting. Okay, music is important, but there's this whole thing about tradition, heritage, aesthetic language to be developed and fully articulated, right? There's this, this, uh, uh, there are these other things there um, as well. Então tem também esse outro aspecto que é um aspecto estético que aqui, de fato, pensando no objeto de arte que é colocado, então se a gente olha essa fala desse artista e dono de selo, ele coloca exatamente que uh, o vinil ele é uma 
tradição, ele também inseriu uma herança cultural, né? então que ele, de certa forma, permite essa linguagem estética, que essa linguagem estética seja desenvolvida e completamente articulada. É, e daí ele compara a cultura do vinil a uma experiência de um livro de arte. Né? Então, de fato, não somente ele está falando, portanto, de som, de música, mas ele está falando da experiência, da experiência estética que ele vê. Né? Então, de fato, como ao mesmo tempo que você consome um livro de arte, consumir um vinil também traz esse valor de objeto artístico ao vinil. Uhum. So, uh, Wolfgang Voigt, the guy that we already heard at the very beginning, uh, gives kind of a, another spin on precisely this aspect, right? When he says that vinyl has seen its down point, let's say like six years ago. Meanwhile, it's coming back. There's a certain revival. So he explicitly uses this term. And he says it's a luxury collector's item. It's, and here it's important, it's designed by individual artists. It's limited stuff. And people buy as collectors. They want to have it on the wall, right? So there is this uh, a reference. And uh, you probably noticed that in IKEA, they have a spe special frames for vinyl covers, right? Be because people treat it as art objects, at least some of the covers. Uh, I don't know, like something like that. It's, it's really quite beautiful. And there's also a matter of scale that I will, uh, that I will um, mention at the end of the slide. But uh, let's go on. And in the record furniture at home, it's cold. Me, personally, I do not think it's ideological or political anymore. I say it's just a question of taste. So for this guy, it's associated with uh, aesthetic taste, right? For him, the relation to vinyl is a relation to, uh, to, to art object. Being, being in possession of this or in contact with this is being in contact with, with art, and art is a matter of taste. And as Bourdieu probably would tell us immediately, the questions of taste are questions of distinction, right? And we already talked a little bit about it, like how the symbolic economy of small scale enables you also to distinguish yourself vis-a-vis -a, -vis a certain kind of mainstream. In this case, it's, uh, um, it's digital uh, mainstream. Okay. Então, continuando com essa ideia do objeto artístico, nessa fala é, daquele mesmo gerente do Compass Records, a gente vê, de fato, que esse objeto artístico também tem esse valor de distinção, uma vez que ele é limitado. Então, é, ele vira um item de luxo de colecionador. Né? Então, exatamente como ele é, é, de certa forma, tem um design individual, algumas capas a gente percebe, né? alguns discos são realmente desenhados por artistas individualmente, é algo limitado. Então, é, ele é muitas vezes utilizado até como objeto de arte, de decoração. Né? Citou no caso da, da IKEA, que tem até... É, um porta vinil aí para você usar como né, uma forma de fazer uh, uma decoração na sua casa então ele vê de fato como um processo que não é nem ideológico nem político, de fato é uma questão de gosto estético né? e daí aqui a gente falando de gosto realmente no, analisando sociologicamente é, pensando no que o no Bourdieu coloca a partir desse gosto que se forma é, de fato esse grupo se distingue e principalmente até em relação a esse mercado mainstream que existe. Então, né, uma distinção não necessariamente só de valor econômico, mas também diante dessa realidade do mainstream que é ainda mais relevante. However, as many other um, participants in this particular scene told us, uh, 
And the question of taste, as it is articulated here, is not just the question of aesthetics. And for example, consider this brief quote from a guy who is the owner of one big record store in Berlin. and says, music is taste, there is no bad music. And then adds, for me, music is always in the context of socializing. Music itself is nothing. Right? So that's a very interesting twist in the story. And, and again, quite a few people told us exactly narrated this story in almost exactly those terms, right? We say, like, yeah, music is great, but, right, the, why do we do it? In the end, when we ask ourselves why do we do it, why we have particular taste, well, because, for example, we want to hang out with particular people, right? It sounds quite mundane, but in the end, those mundane things turn out to be extremely important, right? You want to hang out with particular people. You have particular friends who influence you, and maybe you influence them in turn. There's this whole social sociological aspect. So here you see how taste is not just a matter of distinction in this Bourdieuian sense, but it's also a matter of particular participation in the scene, right? There's a sense of community. <laughs> É, ele coloca que a música é um gosto, né? Então que não existe uma música ruim, né? Que para ele a música sempre está no contexto de socialização, que a música em si ela não é nada. E daí se a gente pensar exatamente nessa questão do gosto, não só pela visão de distinção é, do Josiana, mas também de fato essa possibilidade do do gosto compartilhado para você participar de determinado grupo e você compartilha determinados interesses. Então, de fato, essa questão da socialização e né, da participação do grupo, do pertencimento ao grupo, se torna relevante. Yeah, and here's another quote to support it and elaborate a little bit on this uh, idea of the scene and the sociological importance of the scene. Uh, a, a DJ and producer of Swiss origin, who at that time was in Berlin, but right now lives in Colombia, in Medellin. Uh, vinyl to me is the most important thing in music because it created the scene. And the scene is not just about being in the nightclub, it's also this whole record shopping thing. You connect with other people, discuss music with other people, you support the whole art of the thing. That's what makes it so special. You can never replace that with files at home, sitting in front of your computer listening to tracks. Right? I think it's quite self-explanatory and, and a beautiful... Uh, uh, kind of a summary of, of, of that sensibility, this analog sensibility or the social sociological aspect of it vis-a-vis -vis, uh, digital practices. Então, aqui a questão da cena se torna importante. Então, é, nessa fala desse DJ produtor de origem suíça que mora hoje na Colômbia, ele coloca que o vinil para ele é a coisa mais importante na música porque ela criou a cena. Né? Então, ah, e a cena não é somente é, relacionada ao, ao clube, né, à discoteca, mas também a todo o processo de compra do disco, né, de, de, dessa questão do como comprar o disco, então você se conecta com outras pessoas, você discute música com outras pessoas, é, você ah, ajuda toda, todo esse processo artístico, né, então essa, a própria compra do disco é uma forma de ajudar, de dar apoio ao processo artístico. Então, é isso que ele acha que torna tão especial o vinil, né? que você não consegue substituir, substituir isso com simplesmente é, dados, né? files, né? documentos de música, nesse caso, 
é, sentando na frente do seu computador e ouvindo as músicas. Né? Então, é, essa questão do, do como essa cena se torna também uma sensibilidade para esse processo como um todo, né? não simplesmente a, a, pra, a simples prática de ouvir música, mesmo de adquirir But of course, when we talk about uh, analog records, we cannot forget about the sound, right? So there is this aspect of, of sound and acoustics, which is hugely important. And there's the entire separate discussion of what analog sound is, how it's created, what it constitutes as a, as a cultural value, and so on and so forth. From this huge material, I just uh, uh, um, called out a few excerpts again to give you a sense in, in, in what direction that part of discussion goes in our book. So one interesting thing that we uh, heard from the engineer, and it's important that it was engineer, because these are people who are really knowledgeable about this stuff, like they cut those records or produce them. Uh, one of those told us that what makes us enjoying to listen to analog media and analog sources are mostly the flaws of the analog technology. It's about distortion, and in the best case, harmonic distortion. It's very interesting and very important. Because there is a certain uh, myth here to be dispelled, perhaps. Uh, and the myth goes that the analog is absolutely better than the digital. This is not actually true. From the technical or certain technical point of view, digital is better. Right? It doesn't have certain kinds of distortion. And then, of course, once it's on the vinyl, uh, it's not prone to damages, uh, scratches, things like that. So from a certain technical point of view, uh, we, could, we, couldn't, we couldn't really maintain uh, the statement that the analog is absolutely the best. However, we could say that it's unique and different. And this is very important. And when you talk to the engineers and when you kind of press them to reflect on what it is about this harmonic distortion that uh, makes it enjoyable, as he says, is that it is particular uh, sensory apparatus that we have which somehow likes it. The kinds of harmonic distortion which is present in the analog sound is simply uh, pleasurable and it's visible in the language. We talk often about the warmth or saturated or velvety character of the analog sound. This is precisely in technical terms, this harmonic distortion. And because our ears are analog, not digital, we kind of fuse with it, and we have a pleasurable experience with that, which is quite incredible. So you have a beautiful paradox that something that from the technical point of view could be considered a flaw or imperfection actually makes at least some of us, but a lot of people presented with it actually testify to that, can be interpreted as superior, or at least more interesting, or at the very least, unique. Right? Something which cannot be really replaced or transferred to another medium. And uh, another quote, I think, uh, elaborated in a more specific way. It comes from Robert Henke, a very interesting person, not only because he's an experienced artist and engineer, but also someone who is deeply involved in the digitalization process. He is the, uh, one of the founders of Ableton, which is one of the most important uh, electronic uh, um, music software. Basically, a lot of music that is produced right now is based on that, right? And when I visited this guy in his apartment, you can see that he doesn't really have a lot of vinyls, and he's not really so much into it. You couldn't say that he fetishizes the analog. He's actually deeply into the digital. 
he pushes the boundaries of the digital at the global level, and nevertheless, he has this kind of appreciation of the analog. And he says, there's limitations. There, there's noise, there's noise, there's distortion. He refers to this harmonic distortion. That's pretty much the two limitations you have. And some of the problematic aspects of vinyl turned out to be really cool for the electronic music culture. You get much more complexity as part of the signal. And you get something that is really hard to emulate with other means. It's very specific. And there are many properties to the sound of vinyl which are just technically wrong, but from an acoustic perspective, very pleasing. So what he's saying is that the, the very fact that this medium is physical and introduces all kinds of distortions or unwanted elements actually adds to the acoustic complexity of the signal, right? And complexity can be something good, can be something enjoyable, especially in, let's say, in electronic music in, in terms of a, a club performance. And one important addition that he made, he said, only after CD came out, we figured out that the sound of vinyl is something that due to the specific distortions is actually cool. So it's when this hyper-perfect medium arrives and shows you in experiential terms what it is to have this perfect clinically clean sound, only then by contrast, by this phenomenological contrast, you get to appreciate, hey, there is actually something unique in this other medium, right? So again, it's not just about inherent properties, though of course it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. It's always how things are framed, right? That there's this other medium with other properties that frames the older medium. Aqui ele traz a fala de um engenheiro, que é importante, claro, né? um engenheiro de som, para se discutir essa questão do, ah, da qualidade do som. Ah, e ele fala que o que faz é, com que as pessoas gostem de ouvir a mídia analógica é que você é, tem realmente falhas, né? então, e essas falhas, essas distorções é que tornam o que ele chama aqui de uma distorção harmônica, né? e, e isso acontece exatamente até porque realmente o nosso, o nosso próprio sistema auditivo também é analógico, então de certa maneira é, ele é, recebe de forma mais harmônica, mais aí a ideia do, do caloroso, né? do próprio, a gente vai ver até uma, algumas falas humanas, né? esse som que possui falhas, que possui, distor que possui distorções. E daí é que ele traz uma outra fala de é, uma pessoa que está é, realmente bastante relacionada com a música eletrônica digital, e ele até falou que percebe que é uma pessoa que praticamente não tem nenhum tipo de interesse específico pelo vinil, pelo contrário, uma pessoa que participa de uma, né, de uma realidade musical eletrônica digital, mas que uh, fala que sim, há limitações, no caso do vinil, a a ruído, a distorção, e que essas seriam as duas limitações em relação ao vinil. É, e que, de fato, esses aspectos que poderiam ser considerados problemáticos, na verdade, se tornam a parte legal né, da, dessa cultura musical. Porque, através dessas distorções, você consegue a complexidade né, do, como parte do, desse sinal. Então, é, seria muito difícil você reproduzir essa complexidade em outras mídias. 
né, em outros meios. É, que isso, portanto, torna muito específico, único, né, a possibilidade desse som do vinil, é, que, na verdade, até ele coloca aqui que há, há muitas propriedades do som do vinil ah, que são tecnicamente erradas, né? então, do ponto de vista técnico, não são perfeitas, mas, de uma perspectiva acústica, elas são muito agradáveis, são muito prazerosas. Então, e aqui o, o que é interessante é exatamente que só quando o CD aparece, então essa, esse som tecnicamente perfeito surge, é que as pessoas perceberam que esse som do vinil, que é imperfeito, na verdade, é algo prazeroso e é algo que as pessoas têm, né, acham agradável e gostam. Em addition to sound, that is acoustics, there is also a particular... Uh, vision, which is associated uh, with visual qualities and also uh, tactile, haptic qualities. And, you know, at certain point you cannot talk too much about it because perhaps it's just too obvious and perhaps also it's something that you just have to experience yourself. And uh, one of the DJs, I think, nicely summarized that when he said, like, I don't know what it is, but it looks good, it feels good, right? Many people it say it boils down to that, right? That it kind of feels good, that there's certain haptic and, and, and tactile aspect of it, especially when you have also this gatefold uh, violence that make, make them attractive. There's this one thing, uh, um, one anecdote uh, associated with uh, Morrissey, the singer of the Smiths, uh, who was always very much pissed off with the uh, CD releases of his albums. And he said, uh, you know, vinyl is 500% bigger, the cover, than CD. And he says, like, I always think about the cover art, right? I want to have cover art in a particular way. And he says, this vision that I want in my albums can only work effectively when it's at this format at least, right? And he was always dissatisfied with CD. He said, like, it's just too small. It somehow uh, feels flimsy, uh, he said, right? Now, when you go again to the digital world, there is visuality, but very different, right? It's already mediated by computers. And it's not this kind of a physically mediated uh, visuality of, of the record. But then there is another aspect uh, in terms of visuality and haptics, which is connected to, to turntables, right? The, the, the equipment, the object, which is specifically designed to play vinyl. And again, the, the engineer, Andreas Lubitsch, uh, nicely put it. He said, look at these high-end turntables. Turn it's a sculpture. Right? So you have this association with artwork again. There is one more thing about listening to vinyl. It's having this sculpture playing the music. And I, I would say, and other people actually that we interviewed said that, it's not just about high-end turntables. Right? Pretty much every turntable, when it's properly placed in your living room and among your uh, vinyl collection, it, it stands as something uh, specific and visually attractive. Right? So when you think about a computer, or something like this, these are multifunctional devices, right? In a way, the musical file is indistinguishable with any other bureaucratic file you have on your computer, right? Your computer has all kinds of files, and in a way, music gets muddled with all those other things. The same with that, right? You have WhatsApp here, you call with it, you pay your bills with it, you have your train tickets here, right? Everything, and, and then, of course, you have your music here. So it's brilliant, but at the same time, maybe you lose something. Right? Because it's part of this multifunctional device. With turntable, you cannot do anything else other than playing the music, right? But that's precisely, some people would say, the beauty of it, right? That it's, it's kind of amenable to a ritual use. 
it's created specifically for this purpose, specifically for this kind of experience, right? And part of this experience is also visual. It's not only that it plays your favorite music and it gives you this sound, which is unique, but it also is the sculpture that sits in the, mid of the middle, uh, in the middle of your room. Visuais né, dessa, do vinil. E, e é interessante aqui, primeiro, a gente tem uma fala que fala que simplesmente ele acha que o vinil é, tem, uma, né, ele tem uma boa aparência e ele tem, na verdade, uma sensação boa, né, a sensação do tacho mesmo, né, o toque. E daí o Dominic contou aqui rapidamente a, a fala do Morrissey, do Smith, que fala que ele era, ficava sempre muito frustrado com o lançamento dos discos dele em CD, porque de certa forma a arte que ele via da, né, dessa obra dele tinha esse formato e que o formato do CD de certa forma era pequeno demais para comportar essa arte que ele imaginava, né? então daí sim é, pensando nesse formato do, né, é, do tamanho em si do CD e que também tem um outro aspecto que daí aqui aparece nessa né, visualidade é, então não só o, o, o vinil, o, o disco, mas também a própria, o próprio toca-disco, né? Então esse engenheiro de som fala que ele considera o toca-disco como uma escultura, uma escultura que está no meio da sua sala. E, e na verdade que assim, eles, essa, esse objeto só serve de fato para você ouvir discos, diferente do caso do computador, do caso do celular, que você usa para milhares de outras coisas, e que a música está ali inserida nesse objeto, mas de certa forma você não tem a visualidade disso, né? porque realmente ela se mistura e se perde nessa, nesse objeto, diferentemente de um toca-discos, por exemplo, que de fato você, né? você tem a visualidade ali dessa música, não somente pelo som, mas de fato né? pela funcionalidade desse próprio objeto. E, então essa ideia de ter um toca-discos tocando música na sua sala seria como ter uma escultura, um objeto de arte, que volta a ideia do objeto de arte também. So tangibility means physicality, and with physicality uh, comes temporality of this object. In a way, digital file, a digital clone, is outside of time. It's connected to the temporality of the machines, but once you forget about it, there's no history to the digital file. You can see when it was created, but there's nothing like aging of the digital file. But because this medium is physical, and it's prone to damage, and it wears off as you listen to it, and there's an interesting aspect uh, to that. So, three quotes to, uh, to emphasize that. The first one, states that obviously vinyl is a copy, so it's something that Benjamin would say is mechanically reproduced, right? But it is a tangible thing. More and more people think this way, that is appreciated, right? This experience is not so easily exchanged for something else. It might be the case that people see that something I can't touch and which is not visible can't be of real value. Another aspect of it uh, is articulated by Andreas Baumecker, whom we cited already. He says that it really gets its own character and you cannot get that character with a digital file. It definitely changes over time as you use it, right? Especially when you use it quite often. 
And finally, the third quote. Sometimes, if I have a record which is uh, really old, this is set by the DJ, which is significant here, I even push the high frequencies to make the crackle more obvious, to make people hear that this has been played so many times. I love this one, and it's old. Some people are really like, wow, yeah, you can hear history, you can hear time. It's so great, I think. Right? You can say that the, 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 the age of the record is... Uh, something audible, right? but it's also visible. Uh, we talk in the book a lot about the patina of the cover. right? You can clearly say that the cover is older, and especially with the uh, paper covers. Uh, right? It's a particular kind of uh, material which is prone to, to damage and, and wear over time. So this patina is quite quickly visible, and certainly visible uh, with records that are 40 or 50 years, uh, years old, and as time elapses, they will get even more of this particular uh, value. But then, of course, there is also this this acoustic element of it. There is the uh, question of the surface of vinyl that all also get, gets scratches, crackles, things like that, that give a special kind of atmosphere. Again, you can say that from the technical point of view, it's a problem, it's a flaw, right? It kind of maybe damages the sound. But from the other point of view, you can say, hey, it adds to the atmosphere, right? So quite a few people that we interviewed. Uh, uh, emphasize that. Então, com a questão não física, também surge a questão da temporalidade. Então, essa temporalidade, ela de fato é, tem é, relevância, uma vez que o vinil você não somente tem uma a, uma data específica né, da gravação desse vinil, mas que ele também vai envelhecendo a partir do momento em que ele é usado e que esse uso e esse tempo, portanto, que vai sendo é, imputado ao vinil, ele é também é, parte da experiência. Então, você ouve né, o fato do disco ser velho, você percebe no som, ou mesmo aqui né, a questão da capa, a capa de papel, que também vai se gastando com o tempo, para o momento que ela é manipulada. Então, é... Aqui nas falas, por exemplo, tem a questão né, da tangibilidade desse objeto, então ele é uma foto, então a visão né, que ele traz aqui do, do Benjamin é uma reprodução mecânica, exatamente, e que é, essa experiência, portanto, ela não pode ser substituída facilmente por uma outra, exatamente porque ela acaba sendo única até pela idade, né? então dependendo da idade do seu disco, a sua experiência com o som desse disco é completamente diferente de um outro disco que é mais novo ou mais velho, ou foi usado menos vezes ou mais vezes, então, é... e daí a questão de novo, né? é uma coisa que as pessoas é... No digital não podem tocar, não podem ver, né? Então, isso não poderia ter um valor real. Uma vez que eu não consigo tocar, não consigo ver, isso não é um valor real. É... E que realmente, portanto, essa, essa personalidade né, você não teria no, no arquivo digital. Né? E que essa é, materialidade, de fato, ela vai mudando conforme o tempo. O arquivo digital, ele permanece conforme o tempo. E realmente não, não tem nenhuma alteração é, E que as pessoas percebem até de fato Nessa questão do, é, da idade Até um valor aqui né? Então esse artista está falando Ele coloca é, uma ênfase né, uma, em frequências altas Quando ele toca uma música Quando há uma falha Porque ele exatamente acha que isso Adiciona valor a, a essa escuta então, é como, é, ele coloca aqui, é como se você pudesse ouvir a história, né? como se você pudesse ouvir o tempo. 
né, e que ele acha que isso realmente é, é muito relevante. So in a sense, vinyl is like human, right? It has this kind of uh, uh, quality, or you can say, in other words, that vinyl is iconic of, of certain part of human condition, right? And here, two quick slides that emphasize that. One comes from uh, John Peel, uh, a very famous, you can say iconic uh, BBC uh, DJ, who said, uh, it's from the 80s, I think. Somebody was trying to tell me that CDs are better than vinyl because they don't have any surface noise. That is very perfect. I said, listen, mate, life has surface noise, <laughs> right? Human life. I think this is a very interesting kind of a clever uh, uh, a play on that digital analog uh, difference. But there's also something uh, Brazilian that comes specifically from, from Sao Paulo. Uh, maybe you heard about uh, a guy, Zero Freitas, who, who lives here and has probably the biggest private vinyl collection in the world. Uh, thanks to Viviani, I had a chance to actually interview him and talk to him. And this is, the, by the way, the picture from part of his archive. And he also, towards the end of the interview, he also reflected on this human, so to speak, human quality of vinyl. And yeah, we included the slide, uh, which is in uh, in Portuguese for you to appreciate. Yeah. So I I think this uh, this element of um, analog record being somehow analogous to human life or human condition or a certain aspect of our life is very interesting. And again, for some people, not maybe not for all people. But for some people it matters, right? And certainly it was very visible that for him it matters a lot. He was quite uh, uh, emotional when he was talking about it. I couldn't understand the words, but I was observing that. And I, and I realized that and there are other interviews or articles about him. For example, one in New York Times, which was published several months ago and kind of projected him into an international limelight. And for example, in Berlin, everybody is talking right now about him, but he's kind of a mysterious figure. So people definitely want to know more. But yeah, it's always, always, it, it's transparent in, in any interview with him and that this particular uh, conversation we had, that, that he feels it, right? For, for him, it's part of the story, right? Part of the value of vinyl as opposed to the digital medium is precisely that. So again, it's not just about sound, it's not just about this artistic stuff, right? But it's about history and time. Right? There is history and time, there in all kinds of ways, right? There is a historical archive, right? This is this archival kind of situation. But when you interact with a particular record, you also hear it and you also develop this kind of uh, relation to time, to history, when you listen to particular things. All right. Yes. Mm -hmm.
Uhum. É, essa experiência que a gente teve, é, eu até eu falei para o Dominic que eu não tinha noção de um acervo assim no Brasil. E é emocionante ver, assim, é é algo que eu falo, qualquer brasileiro se orgulharia muito de saber que existe alguém que está preocupado em criar esse acervo, que não é só musical, que não é só de vinil, mas é um acervo cultural, é a cultura brasileira presente nessas estantes e ele... É, de fato é considerado hoje o maior colecionador de discos do mundo ele até nos falou que ah, tem certeza que existem é, marajás na Índia que tem mais discos do que ele mas de fato assim aqui se sabe ele é o maior e ele está comprando esses discos no mundo inteiro tentando trazer de fato de volta essa memória da cultura tanto local o foto dele é cultura brasileira mas como ele compra milhões e milhões de discos ele compra de tudo né? Então ele tem discos do mundo vários todo, estilos. vários estilos, ele não, ele não faz uma seleção, né? ele realmente tem uma compra de certa forma randômica, mas mesmo porque ele falou uma questão muito interessante, o Rui Castro fez uma, uma matéria sobre ele na, na Folha de São Paulo e fez um desafio a ele, que ele criasse, portanto, de fato esse acervo do vinho no Brasil, que, que tenha pelo menos uma cópia de todos os discos que já foram gravados na história brasileira. A questão que ele falou inicial é muito simples, nem se sabe de fato quais foram os discos que já foram gravados na história brasileira, porque nem as grandes gravadoras sabem, quanto mais uh, os selos independentes, os produtores né, independentes, então é claro que nem se sabe do que, o que significa esse acervo. Então, é, ele falou, eu adoraria aceitar esse desafio, mas eu sei que assim, é um projeto de vida e não só meu, ele né, precisa de muitas outras pessoas para vocês terem uma ideia, ele trabalha com 20 pessoas, tempo integral, só para catalogar esse acervo. Né? Dos 7 milhões, ele só tem 300 mil catalogados. Né? Então, é um trabalho, de fato, de anos e anos. Ele vai abrir no final do ano, sorry, I'm explaining more, because... Mm, perfect, very good, very good. Yeah. Então, ele, até o final do ano, vai abrir esse acervo para acesso público, então, o objetivo dele não é ser um colecionador e ele não... Ele, o que é interessante é assim, ele falou, eu tenho 100 mil discos em casa, essa é a minha coleção. Esse acervo é um acervo, de fato, para ser da sociedade, né? Então, é um acervo que ele quer criar para acesso público. Então, de fato, eu acho que é um projeto, assim, eu realmente fiquei muito impressionada com essa ideia. E ele coloca, né, de fato, essa questão da memória, da cultura, como é que a gente resgata isso e ele né, de fato colocou essa, essa frase novamente então que ele considera o vinil, essa mídia analógica como uma forma analógica à vida humana, né? ele brincou com essa coisa, analogia à vida humana, então a vida humana como uma vida analógica então é uma pessoa que na verdade desde os 18 anos coleciona vinil né? e que até hoje busca essa analogia então acho que realmente uma experiência muito no, no, it's perfect. I'm very glad that you expanded on that. But it's, it's quite clear uh, uh, that Brazil, and specifically Sao Paulo, is one of the centers of vinyl culture globally. Uh, one thing that kind of uh, encapsulates um, certain aspects that I have been talking about for the last 15 minutes 
can be found in this uh, quick citation from Robert Hanke again. We said that there are things that probably don't change. We can think about virtualization of this world in many ways, but one thing doesn't change. We have bodies, and we are still talking about us. We're not talking about an abstract construction. We talk about human beings. We are tactile, we respond to temperature, we respond to smells, to taste, to physical textures, and we would probably never choose an avatar over our partner we love. And so the virtualization of the world has certain limits. And in a way, we become aware of those limits, partly because of interactions with media like that. And it is the hybrid use of media, in this case, digital and analog media, that actually make us aware of the specificity or specificities of each medium, and therefore the boundaries and differences between uh, media. And, and here, this picture, I think, uh, kind of emphasizes that, right? Like, it, uh, you see the DJ playing both digital and vinyl, which for us is like a symbol of, uh, yeah, a hybrid practice. Uh, media are not mutually exclusive things, as mainstream industry sometimes try to tries to convince us, right? So the mainstream industry towards the middle of the 2000s basically abandoned the vinyl completely, right? And, and in a way sent this message to the society, forget about other formats, right? Like you don't have to bother with them anymore. We have a perfect format for you. But there is a certain kind of resistance, right? And the next slide will narrate that and that will be the end. But I will let Viviani to translate this now. Um concreto, com um tátil, com um físico, mas também a própria possibilidade do uso é, híbrido né, de diferentes meios, de diferentes mídias. Então, aqui na fala a gente tem que provavelmente há muitas coisas que não mudam, é, que a gente pode pensar na virtualização do mundo de muitas formas, é, mas que uma coisa nunca vai mudar, que nós temos corpos e que nós ainda falamos é, sobre nós, que nós ainda estamos, é, que nós não estamos falando, na verdade, sobre uma construção abstrata, não né? estamos falando sobre nós, sobre, não sobre uma construção abstrata, porque estamos falando sobre é, seres humanos. Nós somos táteis, né? nós temos essa necessidade, inclusive, né? tátil, respondemos, portanto, a temperatura, a cheiro, a gosto, a texturas físicas, e que provavelmente nós não escolheríamos um avatar no lugar de, por exemplo, né, um companheiro que a gente chama, e que a virtualização do mundo teria certos limites. E isso ah, mostra que não só a questão do limite da virtualização, é, mas também a possibilidade até da convivência, de fato, desse uso híbrido. Né? Então, aqui a foto mostra né, um DJ utilizando ao mesmo tempo o físico, o vinil, mas também o digital. Então, existe essa convivência, né, mas que de fato não seria, é, a partir dessa visão, uma substituição completa. So, technological progress and cultural development is not like a line which goes from, you know, one thing to another because it's better, right? And this is often the mainstream uh, narrative that we have. Uh, development can be conceived of as something multi-track or something hybrid, right? With reversals and revivals like this one. And this is kind of a, a, a critical uh, uh, or even sometimes you could say subversive potential of analog culture in the digital age, right? Uh, you can you can say 
that especially when juxtaposed with uh, CDs, uh, vinyl constitutes something that perhaps could be considered uh, under certain conditions more fair. And here again, uh, an interesting citation from Robert Henke, uh, who shares a, a, an important part of music industry and the way it operates. Uh, he says, CD was basically the golden age for the music industry, the mainstream music industry, because the cost of the CD went very, very quickly all the way down and the price stayed very, very high for a, ver for a very long time. By the way, CD is eight times cheaper to produce on vinyl, but when it was introduced, the price on the market was the same. Right? So in this sense, it was indeed the golden age from the industry point of view. It was very abnormal, he says, historically unique singularity, because industry was just able to make a lot of money with very little effort. The amount of money you could make with a CD release is insane, and an, un an unhealthy amount of money, an unjustified uh, amount of money. Uh, so here you have this kind of a, a critical, uh, critical element. But there's also another um, part of the story, namely that, again, juxtaposed with files, with digital files, uh, analog medium is something which is uh, harder to pirate, right? As I mentioned before, there are bootlegs, but it's just uh, the technology of it is much, much more complicated, right? So. Uh, Copying a digital uh, digital file is, is far easier uh, than uh, producing a, a bootleg analog record. And in a sense, especially when we talk about independent uh, markets, the connection between the consumer and an independent label and artist is kind of more legible. It's more transparent. And in this sense, perhaps, perhaps also more ethical, because when you buy it, it goes there, right? This kind, you kind of don't circumvent it. There, there are no such thing really as pirated vinyls. When you buy it, this is it. So it's kind of a simple, um, um, a simple um, commodity in a way, if you, uh, if you wish. And again, when, when you consider this first quote, uh, how could industry really do this to the consumers? Other people that we interviewed said exactly the same. Uh, that it was kind of unethical uh, to keep the price at the same level even though it was eight times uh, cheaper to produce and not really informing people. On the other hand, like kind of uh, convincing people, as one person told us, to buy their fa favorite music again, <laughs> right? Just telling them, oh, it sounds more perfect right now. Buy it at the same price even though it's ten times cheaper for us to produce it, right? So again, when you have this analog-digital binary, you can see that there's a potential for, uh, for critical narrative and potentially political or, or even, we could say, ideological, critical ideological narrative. So to kind of summarize it, we can say there's not only aesthetics of the analog culture, but there's also ethics of analog culture, right? It's not only poetics that we've been talking a lot about, but also politics. Of, of vinyl, and this is just a quick example of how uh, that could work. Pensando então que é, esse mainstream, as grandes gravadoras tentaram construir essa visão de que é, o desenvolvimento tecnológico era o único caminho possível, de fato, que você não teria a possibilidade de convivência, de revivals ou de movimentos alternativos específicos. A gente tem então essa discussão quando pensamos nessa 
relação a analógico digital é uma discussão ética de fato é, primeiro numa visão aqui mostrando é, que a indústria musical realmente é, lucrou muito com é, o CD que foi o período na história em que a indústria mais fez dinheiro porque com a introdução do CD realmente os custos caíram drasticamente então uma média aí de oito vezes mais barato produzir um CD do que um vinil, ao mesmo tempo em que os preços se mantiveram né, no mesmo patamar, ou seja, realmente uma troca aí muito lucrativa para a indústria é, e que claramente é, isso foi durante muito tempo aí uma fonte aí de muitos recursos para esse, né, principalmente para as grandes gravadoras é, e que daí, portanto, entra essa visão é, de muitos consumidores, principalmente, que o vinil, a reprodução mecânica, por ser única, é muito mais difícil de você piratear, né? é possível, mas é muito mais difícil, é, e que é, é, é difícil também essa ideia do, de você pra, é, acompanhar né? e você ter o um controle sobre isso necessariamente a partir de uma visão mais sistêmica, é, e que seria mais justa com os próprios artistas, que essa relação, portanto, não passaria por tantos intermediários que lucrariam com esse processo, com esse sistema, que estaria mais relacionada, portanto, com, uma, com um etos é, do faça você mesmo, da possibilidade de você ter um contato mais próximo com um grupo de artistas. A gente teve contato, por exemplo, com selos que fazem vinis sob encomenda para artistas que têm grupos realmente muito específicos, que querem ter essa relação com os artistas é, e, e daí volta a ser a ideia exatamente que é, o consumidor ele tem uma visão também ética no próprio consumo do analógico porque ah, não se trata somente do prazer estético ver como objeto artístico mas também um, uma possibilidade de uma discussão política né e daí da ética é, desse consumo é, pelo meio analógico, né, em relação ao digital, pensando nesse sistema e na forma como a indústria acabou criando esse sistema. So one thing is that we have analog digital uh, difference when we compare uh, LPs to CDs, but there's also another aspect to this story when you think about virtual dig digitalization. So here we have uh, physical digital product CDs, but right now we have all those files and we don't even purchase them uh, that often anymore. It, in the future, it will be all about streaming, and uh, income will be generated for advertising and things like that. So consumers won't pay anymore for music. But what happens is that uh, all the streaming devices, just like any other virtual devices, like social, uh, um, social portals like Facebook, for example, they are not only useful and, and kind of easy for you to to interact with, and they also potentially tools of perfect surveillance, right? So something like Spotify is based on artificial intelligence, uh, which has algorithms that perfectly know your preferences. From the one point of view, you can say, oh, brilliant, I will get all the music in the world that I potentially love, or really love. On the other hand, somewhere out there in the cloud, there is a perfect profile of you. And maybe you don't want this, right? And more and more people say, we do not want this. And in this context, the analog is the offline. And often, that means not trackable. 
if, if I go to a secondhand store in Sao Paulo and I pay with cash and then listen to it on my turntable, no government and no agency knows my taste <laughs> and knows my consumption pattern, right? And for more and more people, even though if they don't have a particular feeling like, oh, I have something to hide, still there is a certain value, a certain critical value, right? In the times when we have so many surveillance scandals and we constantly feel like we are under enormous scrutiny, right? It's this absolutely perfect Foucauldian panopticon in which we live, then this analog medium kind of is at least slightly subversive to it, right? So again, in the digital era, the analog means offline. Now, go back in time. In the 80s, no one would say that analog is offline. That wouldn't make any sense, right? People didn't even have, really, at, at least most people didn't have this language developed. Now, this language is our common reality. This is, this is the world in which we live. So, uh, describing the analog as offline makes sense, right? But it makes sense only in the digital, in the virtual context. Só pensando, então, é, a questão do, do analógico como essa possibilidade do offline, né, do, do, fora do universo digital, é claro que isso é possível nessa nossa realidade que, onde o digital já existe. E daí, de novo, a ideia, aqui comparando ali, a, o primeiro exemplo foi o CD, que o CD também é físico, mas, mas se a gente pensa na realidade digital dessa segunda, né, da digitalização 2.0, onde não se tem o, o, a música física e nem, é, provavelmente, é, no futuro muito próximo, se paga pela música em si, mas em contrapartida você tem um possível outro curso que é esse processo de vigilância, um controle daquilo que você está consumindo e de certa forma também esse perfil do que você está consumindo se torna produto é, comercializado né, por essas redes e por esses sistemas. Então, de certa maneira, a escolha do consumidor por essa mídia analógica offline também é uma questão de sair desse sistema de vigilância que é uma questão que a gente sabe contemporaneamente é bastante relevante é, tentando aí de certa forma né, não ser controlado e daí de, né, bem claro a visão do, do Foucault, do Panóptico é, desse controle aí multiplicado e presente em tantos lugares atualmente então, como sair disso e não ser, portanto, né, não, não ter o seu gosto hackeado ou controlado o tempo inteiro, né? Ninguém precisa saber de fato que tipo de música você gosta de ouvir, que você está ouvindo. E essa também é essa possibilidade. And here the concluding last um, uh, slide or last bit of reflection about how analog stands in certain contrast to the digital because more and more often as digital consumers we realize uh, that we are overloaded with data right there's just much more than we could possibly ever consume so we get distracted right sometimes we, we get fatigued uh, sometimes we forget about things because we think like we always can store it we always can save it and it's always there and we have this bottomless hard disks and bigger and bigger phones that can store more and more information, but then can we really process this information? And especially the question is, can we process in a meaningful, kind of a deeper way? So many people compare analog to slow food, right? They say slow food or organic food 
is kind of analogous to uh, to uh, analog music consumption, right? The the, the vinyl is the the or the organic, the slow food of uh, of the music industry. And here again, Henke comes with some uh, amazing uh, quotes that uh, that kind of underline uh, those aspects and and clearly position. Uh, the analog vis-a-vis -vis the digital. He says, in the digital world, we create this constantly growing world of data, which in one way or the other is also very dangerous. It doesn't enforce decision. And so there's all this revival of people working with analog, not only in terms of uh, actual disks, but also in terms of equipment, all kinds of equipment. And he reflects on that, saying, it's another exercise of focus. Here, the focus is on a limited palette of functions. You cannot do a lot of things with vinyl. This is it, right? When you work with all kinds of amazing softwares, they give you these incredible possibilities, but do we really need them? Do we really use them? Some people, perhaps. But do all people need it? Do all people use it? That's an empirical question. The way he addresses is, we cannot spend our time accessing everything which the media put out right this very second which is already way too much, way more than we can handle. That's the essential question of these days. It's the big data in your small home. There's no boundary anymore, right? We live in this digital cloud, which is boundless in a sense. In this context, having a self-contained world which imposes boundaries and says, no, you can't go beyond that, that's something I believe is really important. So I think I will conclude with, with this. Para concluir, acho que a questão desse, é, dessa escala menor é relevante exatamente pensando a impossibilidade de se consumir um número infinito de músicas, uma quantidade infinita de músicas. É, você nunca teria tempo na sua vida possível para ouvir todas as músicas que você tem no seu computador, ou mesmo você esquece que você tem certas músicas, porque você tem tantas músicas e você vai é, armazenando essas músicas. Então, a de certa maneira, essa questão do, do consumo é, analógico nesse mundo digital também mostra esse aspecto. É, então, nesse mundo de dados, né, o quanto a gente perde o foco, perde a atenção, perde a memória. É, então, que quando a gente tem o digital, a gente não, não necessariamente né, tem que tomar uma decisão. Então, exatamente que música que eu vou ouvir. Né? É fácil até de mudar de música, né? a gente vai apertando o botão e mudando de música. É... E daí, exatamente, é um outro tipo de exercício de foco. Então, é o foco em funções mais limitadas, né? menos opções de, de funções. Então, é... que o... no analógico você não pode fazer várias coisas né? com vinil, você só pode ouvir música de novo. Né? A coisa que com o seu computador, com o celular é completamente diferente. Então, de certa forma, isso também tira o teu foco. Enquanto você está ouvindo música, você está mandando texto, você está assistindo um vídeo, você está falando com alguém. Né? Então, é, que isso de fato é uma questão é, essencial nos nossos dias, né? não somente em questão ao consumo de música. Então, é, é esse mundo da, da nuvem, dos, desses dados, Big Data, que de fato né, se tornou uma realidade contra você na sua casa e a sua própria realidade. Então, é, nesse contexto assim, desse mundo que não tem fronteiras com esse mundo no seu no mundo próprio é, o que esse artista coloca, ele acha que é importante assim, se colocar né, contra esse processo aí, é, dessa grande nuvem de dados que não teria mais limite ou foco nenhum
so yeah, the, the last sentence that I think I could say is that, as it probably was quite uh, clear to you, uh, this whole project is not about saying vinyl is good, digital is bad, <laughs> obviously not. Uh, it's about one thing, digital context framing the, the analog medium, right? And kind of uh, emphasizing certain meanings of the analog culture that perhaps wouldn't be visible otherwise, right? So there's this one, one element of it. And another is that as we become more and more surrounded and used to the digital devices that of course are very functional and, and, and great, they become subject to what Weber, uh, a sociological classic, would describe as routinization, right? They become routine tools of our consumption, of our work. And we know, as authors of this book, even though we're invested in it personally, that vinyl will not regain the mainstream sales and mainstream consumption, right? And I wanted to show it to you by re relativizing the numbers at the, at the first part of this presentation. But that's not the point, right? That the vinyl is this pocket of the market or a certain niche that enables people to preserve certain rituals, right? And certain kind of experiences and engagements with music. So in a sense, to use sociological language again, it's kind of routine versus the ritual, right? Or, or a, a, a special kind of ritual, a special kind of experiences, right? That we perhaps do not need to use all the time, but we kind of want to have it there. We don't want that it disappears completely. And I think Zerofreitas is one of those people at the very high level of the scale who says, like, no, it cannot go away. Like, we have to preserve it. And at the lower level, you have all these regular consumers who frequent normal stores in Sao Paulo and world over who basically also have that feeling and that sensibility that I tried to narrate for you. Sorry that it took uh, such a long time, but I hope that I managed to go with Viviani to, to, to keep your attention going. And now, of course, I'm all yours in terms of questions. Uma relação de vinil é o, o herói da história, é o lado bom da história e o CD, o digital, desculpa, é o lado mal, o vilão da história. Mas de fato é tentar entender então essa realidade do vinil nesse processo, né, nessa realidade do digital. Então como é que você vê esse fenômeno do vinil dentro desse, é, dessa realidade? É, e, além disso, de fato, mostrar, além da ideia da, da rotinização, né, porque a gente, de fato, tem esse consumo musical na nossa rotina, faz parte do, do nosso dia a dia, mas muito mais essa experiência com esse ritual, que é importante tanto para os é, colecionadores, para os consumidores que realmente buscam, em alguns momentos, essa essa experiência, ou até né, nessa própria, nesse próprio projeto aí do acervo e é, uma pessoa que tem essa outra preocupação com história, com memória, então outras questões desse ritual do vinil que também são interessantes para trazer a conta. Então agora a gente traz os nossos comentadores ou que tem a mesa lá. É, vocês querem todos sentar na mesa? É. Melhor, sit here, there, or because they are coming here to debate. Yeah, so I, I should sit here or here? 
This is, thank you, this is very interesting and uh, in a way what you said about these uh, composers predicting uh, something, you know, like that people would stop um, producing music uh, or recording music at home. And this shows how dangerous it is to predict anything in social sciences, right? And uh, I would even go further and say that you need sociological or cultural or anthropological sensibility to understand that there are, as Robert Henke in this one quote indicated, there are certain aspects of human life that won't go away so easily, right? And this is part, part of the story, I think, that there is a creative desire in people, right? That will make them prone to produce the music even if conditions are not perfect, right? There is also a certain desire for ritual understandings, right? This is partly how, uh, at certain point, the slow food as a reaction to fast food uh, occurred in, in Western countries. Like, people feel like, okay, it's, it's kind of functional, but do we want to live in this functional society that speeds up everything and actually forces us to eat fast food because we have no time? Right? We had this discussion with 
with Viviani when she asked me, Dominic, do you cook? And I said, like, mm, unfortunately, I don't cook. I have no time. <laughs> right? But it's not that I don't like cooking, and it's not that I'm very happy that I don't have time. No, I'm actually not happy. Right? And I'm very happy when I can enjoy cooking with friends, when I can go to the restaurant, and instead of consuming something in 45 minutes, I can take more time and properly enjoy the meal, and also properly digest it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there is the need for ritual. Right? That are all those, um, you can say, needs or inclinations or propensities, you name it, that lead people towards particular uh, forms of practices, particular kinds of consumption, uh, particular forms of expression. And I try to talk about it a little bit when I, um, when I emphasize the importance of scenes and social aspects of it, right? As you said, like people produce music not only because they want to be very important or they want their music to sound perfect. Sometimes we do it just for fun. You know, we want to have fun. And this whole lo-fi movement testifies to that, you know? Some people don't care so much whether it's high quality or, you know, lower quality. This, this aspect of quality is not necessarily very important for certain groups. For some groups it is. For others, maybe not necessarily so. What is important that they get together, that they create the scene, that they have a sense of being creative, independent of some other people telling them what to do or imposing certain standards on them that tell them this is quality and this is not quality, this is good and this is bad, and so forth, and so on and so forth, right? So maybe you remember there's this one quote from the store owner who says there's no bad music, right? Which kind of expresses this. It, it, it's, it's, it's not that we can conceive of a very simple scale, right, according to which we can absolutely measure things. Things are not necessarily measurable. So my things social, things human, right, are not, and cultural, are not necessarily measurable in this strict sense. We can throw a lot of numbers at people, but then there's a question of meaning, right? And I can clearly imagine how this home production of music has meaning to people, right? Because it's related to a certain kind of expression, certain kind of independence, certain kind of social practice. And this is not something that can be economically categorized easily, right? You need other forms of understanding to see why it's happening and why it doesn't die down, just like vinyl didn't uh, die, die down. I, I hope that this addresses at least part of the intention behind your, your question. Eu, eu vou reproduzir, claro, só uma parte da sua pergunta até para também reproduzir a parte mais importante da resposta, mas a, me corrija, por favor, se eu vou colocar corretamente. Mas a, a questão é exatamente como música, essa a possibilidade da, da produção de música pelo próprio artista e daí a, a sua própria música, independente é, de uma questão de qualidade de som, certo? E, é. É, como é que isso estaria relacionado com essa própria... As pessoas continuam produzindo música é. amadora, se reunindo para tocar, apesar de... Com a própria reprodução, seja ela mecânica, né? E daí, de fato, né? E daí que a gente viu aqui a questão versus o digital, né? Mas acho que... É, até você colocou, né, de que algumas pessoas, alguns mestres previam uma vez que 
é, a música fosse mecanicamente reproduzida, que as pessoas deixariam de tocar música em casa, né? como se fosse uma substituição. E daí a Dominique coloca exatamente essa necessidade humana é, realmente é, da, da criação, né? e, e a música como uma forma de suprir essa necessidade e de trazer essa possibilidade. Ah, e essas pessoas que constroem, portanto, essas cenas musicais e que tocam em casa, esses artistas que tocam em casa, estariam é, buscando, claro, uma forma dessa expressão, dessa criatividade, ou até simplesmente, como ele colocou, tem pessoas que simplesmente buscam se divertir, né, fazendo música, produzindo música. E não necessariamente, portanto, isso passa por uma visão de uma música de alta qualidade ou de baixa qualidade, né, como ele mostrou, não existe. Uma música ruim, existe música e as pessoas né, buscariam fazer isso exatamente nesse caminho de continuar aí com essa prática, que é uma prática de fato tanto criativa, mas social, dessa relação com a música. Maybe just one very quick thing that I would add, because you also asked whether I think that these certain qualities or human qualities are more important than other qualities or other aspects. I, I think that what we learned. From, from this study is that vinyl is vibrant and, and interesting and capable of being revived because it can speak in different ways to different communities. So different people find something in it. It's not that everybody agrees about every single aspect. No. Some people do it as collectors. Some people do it uh, like Serofreitas, who think like, oh, I want to have an archive of Brazilian music, right? Some people are DJs and they want particular uh, manipulable object that they can play with and they like the haptics and feeling of it, right? Other people are freaks in terms of cover art and they collect cover arts. So we talk about one guy who even buys all the editions of the same vinyl. Because he says, like, they're always different, and Zeta Freitas actually also says this. Somebody said, like, oh, you have, like, ten copies of Bob Marley. Well, everyone is different, he says, right? So you have different people, different scenes, and different groups valuing different aspects of it. So it's hard to say whether this one is more important than the other, because every scene and every group kind of finds different things in vinyl. It has this kind of multiplicity of meanings. So that people can connect to it from different sides. Some of those people can probably appreciate the holistic aspect of it. And, and quite a few reviews that recently have been published in, in England and uh, in Germany and other countries. And there were some blogs also who found the book and commented of the book. They were talking about this holistic aspect. They call it holistic aspect of mine. So for some people, it is quite amazing that like you have all those qualities and they appreciate perhaps many of them or perhaps even all of them but for a lot of groups and scenes it's like that they have a particular angle particular point of view and vinyl enables that right that different groups can value it for different reasons tem diferentes possibilidades de contato. Então, tem pessoas que têm interesses específicos, né? grupos que teriam interesses específicos nesse consumo. Ah, não necessariamente daí, a gente estava falando antes da questão da criatividade ou né, do, do músico, mas também pessoas que colecionam, por exemplo, capas de discos, né? que se preocupam muito mais com a questão da capa do disco, ou colecionadores de discos 
querem ter uma grande coleção, ou pessoas que, DJs que querem ter uma, né, uma possibilidade de tocar diferentes estilos musicais, diferentes, fazer diferentes mixes, então, que realmente também existem esses usos específicos do vinil que não necessariamente passam por essa questão né, da, da criatividade musical anterior, né? So, uh, 
Ecofence, I'm trying to make a question, but I, I can't succeed. I only said a lot of things that the, your presentation made me think. And I want to uh, share with you. I want to share another history, but I need some help of translation. Que fez uma brincadeira que valia a pena comentar, que era o. O filho virou? É, que tinha uma, aquela. Ops, é, aquela história dos, de seus Beatles, que tinha uma coisa demoníaca quando se viravam para trás. Esse grupo fez, disse que tinha uma mensagem escondida e quando você virava estava dizendo você está estragando o seu toca-disco. <risos> <risos> which means they are amenable to certain uses more than to others, or maybe only to particular kind of uses, right? And here it's important to see how that enables the shift in the debate from talking and comparing better wars, saying different, right? This is different. It enables a different kind of experience, right? We can stop obsessing about better and, you know, progress and things like that and start thinking, more phenomenologically, for example, that this kind of job wouldn't be possible. By the way, there are uh, also electronic artists that do this, like that if you slow down the music very much, then you hear messages all of a sudden, which is also very interesting, right? So, yeah, there, 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 are, there are these things, and I'm very glad that you, that you mentioned that, uh, because I think in a beautiful uh, way, it, it makes us aware of this uh, fact that sometimes it's obfuscated by big theories and big concepts, right? And, and this is it, that, that the particular signification or particular cultural value is available only or mostly in a particular uh, media environment, right? So that's one thing. Uh, in terms of your comments, thank you very much. These are all very interesting comments. And uh, the first remark that you made about <clears throat> vinyl being like a, a woodcut. Th that's great, because we try to show in the book um, that the analog revival, that the vinyl revival in the digital age is not an isolated cultural phenomenon. Actually, you see parallels, right? In food, in books, in coffee consumption, things like that, right? That people yearn for a certain kind of ritualization. They want to have particular kinds of experiences that depart 
from certain uh, um, mainstream practices. And th th that was particularly brilliant, I think, this, this connection to Woodcut, because you said first it was a communication medium and then it becomes artistic medium, right? In a way, this is what happens with the analog culture, not only with vinyl, but also with analog synthesizers. We visited one guy. Uh, analog synthesizers, all kinds of analog equipment, right? This is also analog, right? I could have, I, I could have used iPad, right? Which is great, and I have the computer, of course, and I have the iPhone or whatever. But I also like those things, right? Like somehow they enable particular practices that that, that I like, or maybe I have particular relation to, and and yeah, we, we observe that in, in different different aspects of cultural life. Mm -hmm. So I really like the woodcut comparison because it shows this transition from communication to art. And actually, uh, Jeff Alexander, my, my, my American advisor, PhD advisor, uh, has this one article in which he describes uh, the difference between coded messages of discourse or text, which we decode and, and we engage in a kind of a process of communication with other people with, uh, with the text. But there's also something which is ineffable, which is beyond communication, and he, he simply calls it experience. And that's why sometimes we say, oh, I've experienced that, and I cannot really tell you, like, you have to experience that. You can easily think about things in life that you can talk about, but you really also have to do them to understand what it is and to really share it. Like, if, you, if other person didn't experience that, then you can talk forever, and something will always be lost. Right? We have to meet together and do those things, right? We cannot just talk about it. So this concept of the ineffable in English, I think, nicely captures that. And, and for this reason, I also particularly like that, that shift that you articulated from communication to art. Right? Art is a form of, of communication, you can say, but it's also more than communication. Right? It's not just communication. And perhaps we are at a loss with our words to describe it. And maybe we shouldn't try too hard to describe it, but to encourage Just people to go to the go to the produce music at home and see how it feels. Go to the concert and see how it feels. Play your vinyl, except ex, ex, uh, instead of using your uh, MP3s, which are by the way ten times ten times smaller as a file, right? So your you, your regular MP3 is one twenty eight. I think, and the vinyl is uh, 1,200, 1,200 kilobytes per second. So the vinyl signal is 10 times richer than your MP3. Right? That's a big difference. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very much about pushing towards art, towards aesthetic experiences, social experiences, things like that, that may be, to a certain extent, beyond language, right? So that's, that's one thing. Um, the dead media, this is actually a very interesting aspect. I think in our book and also the article that we published, we try to show that, at least for now, it's not a dead medium. Yeah. Actually, the revival and the statistics show that even though it's relatively small, it's a niche phenomenon, still it's pretty vibrant. And I could see it also in Rio, where we went this weekend in Sao Paulo, it's quite vibrant. And of course, in, in Europe and in the United States, in, in Japan especially, it's very vibrant. In, actually, in Japan, I, I was there last year, and I realized one thing. Talking about revival in Japan doesn't fully make sense, because they have always been crazy about vinyl. 
It's incredible how much stuff they have and how many people consume it. Like you go to the record store and there are a lot of them and each one has thousands of vinyl and you enter one of those stores randomly picked in, in Shibuya or Shinjuku, one of those, uh, something like Villa Madalena here or the downtown, right? One of those areas. You go there and you see Lolitas shopping next to the bankers. <laughs> like literally, I saw, literally, I saw people in suits shopping for techno records, right? Because it's so deeply ingrained in culture to have it on vinyl, to be engaged with that culture. So you see that it's actually quite global and quite vibrant. Uh, but there is a kind of um, a dead medium as far as um, analog is concerned, and it's the previous format before the vinyl. So vinyl was introduced in 48 and in commercial use in the 50s. And it hasn't changed ever since, which is quite interesting, right? This kind of stuff was already in use um, 65 years ago, right? So since early 50s, this is commercially used and it hasn't changed. The production is the same uh, and it looks the same. However, before, the first half of the 20th century, there were analog records, but they were made of different material, which was called shellac. And this shellac was quite good, but it was brittle. So if you dropped it, it would break into pieces. Right? So for example, this is like kind of flexible, it's prone to be warped, but you can never really break it. If you, if you drop it, nothing happens. And it also has other properties that are simply acoustically better. Uh, in other words, there are all kinds of properties that actually make vinyl alive, so to speak. And shellac is a dead medium. Shellac never experienced a revival. Right? People stopped using it in the 50s, more or less, and it never experienced a revival. There are some collectors, but that's it, right? People don't use it, and this, this is where we come back to what we said before. Vinyl is attractive, has different affordances for different groups. DJs like it, audiophiles like it, collectors like it, all kinds of groups can connect to this, keeping it alive, even if it's relatively small. Shellac, the previous analog format, is a perfect example of a dead medium. But I didn't think about it until you told me about this dead, dead medium thing. And so this is actually a great concept, right? Because when you apply the concept of dead medium to the analog culture, then you can say shellac is a dead, dead medium, and vinyl, 33 and 45, vinyl record is still alive. Maybe it will be dead at some point, we'll see. But, yeah, I shouldn't predict. <laughs> uh, then gestures. This is great, and we spent some time in the book talking about that. Um, because with haptics, and tangibility of the medium comes something that you could describe that, you know, in, in social theory and anthropology people talk about uh, hexes, which is particular pattern of gestures and it's fascinating how when you talk to different people in, in our book it's visible they complain that when people play with laptops they are just hunched over laptops and they're kind of static because playing with the computer doesn't require a lot of movement Whereas when you DJ with vinyl, actually it requires movement. There is a particular hexis to the DJ performance. You have to pick up the record, you have to put it, put it on, maybe flip it, then you know, put it back. You know, like there's, there's this entire system of gestures. And, and I really like that you picked up on it, because we really spent some time in the book emphasizing that. And from the point of view of consumption of music, people say, like, I love DJ performance with analog and I hate this digital stuff. When people just like hang over the laptop, right? <laughs> Some people love it, 
They think like, oh, it's kind of mysterious. Like this guy doesn't move, but the music comes out, <laughs> right? But for other people, it's like, oh, awesome. Like I like this movement, right? And like on the dance floor, some people emphasize it's, for example, important when the DJ is at the same level with the with the dancing crowd, and they can see this system of gestures, right? And we kind of get accustomed with it. And of course, every person will have their own idiosyncratic way of moving. Right? putting their own spin on, on this hexes. So I think that's also very important. And, I, and I'm glad to, to hear you said that I made you think about certain things. And I can say the same to you, that you made me think, of, okay, these are actually important aspects, right? Because just like you said, other people also pick up on it. And, and they indeed talk about physicality in terms of, yeah, what kind of gestures are connected to it? What kind of feelings are connected to it? And of course, visibility that you mentioned at the end. Uh, that's also very important, right? You use this phrase, which I very much like and wrote it down, junction of hearing and seeing. Vinyl is very much a junction of all kinds of senses. We call it a multi-sensory medium, because it engages the, the vision almost as much as it engages the, the hearing. And yeah, there's also something about the touch of it, and, and so on and so forth. So in German tradition, in German philosophy and aesthetics, there's this term that perfectly worked for us. It, it's Gesamtkunstwerk, which can be translated as a, a holistic artistic object. And, and vinyl is a perfect example of Gesamtkunstwerk. The word was created way back in time, before even analog records were created, but it, it perfectly fits. Right? It's, it's exactly something that engages vision, something that engages hearing and other senses. So it's kind of multi-sensory experience, just like going to concert is also multi-sensory experience. Right? Hearing music live is not just about hearing music live. It's about seeing these people producing this music, si sitting in this amazing hall, right? which has particular acoustic properties, visual properties, being aware of the crowd. That's another whole aspect, right? Like something that Durkheim calls collective effervescence. Right? The dance club is a paradigmatic example of collective effervescence. Durkheim would love techno parties. <laughs> right? Because you go to them and you see this effervescent crowd which bonds over this experience, right? Always when I teach my students and they have difficulties with Durkheim, I was like, go to the club. <laughs> Yes, of course. I don't have any questions. Uh, when you were talking about, uh, sorry, I have to look at my notes. Uh, when you were talking about harmonic distortion, mm -hmm. I couldn't stop thinking about photography. Yeah. Because I study photography, and yeah. I was thinking about noise in photography, like if you, if you use a lot of sensibility in in yeah. the film. Uh, you can see the noise in photography. Yes. And I was thinking about how I like this. You were talking about flaws you can hear in the vinyl. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with photography because I don't know why, but we like imperfections. Yes. It's like uh, some people say that we don't love people about their qualities, but uh, for their imperfections. Yeah. And it's like that for music and photography and cinema. Yeah. I was thinking like you were saying, you could you could be taking notes in your iPad or yeah. in your cell phone, but you prefer you a notebook. You prefer yeah. you prefer using a pen. 
you prefer using a pen or yeah. a pencil. And I think it's the same thing for music because we're surrounded by information all the time. Yeah. Like it, it's the technology era, so we never stop. There's fast food, there's fast music. And yeah. when, when we see analog stuff, like analog music, analog vinyls, it, it makes us slow down. It, it almost forces us to slow down, so yeah. it's great. It's a, it's a moment you take in your day to slow things down. And I think it works perfectly for any kind of art. Yeah, it's, it's a great parallel, again, and we mentioned that in the book as well. And what you said, that, uh, yeah, we kind of like, or at least some people like imperfections. We have a perfect quote uh, for that from uh, Philip Zolman, Evdemin artist. He said, perfection is the most annoying thing there is. It's the, <laughs> yeah, it's the guy who said that he uh, pushes uh, high frequencies when the record yeah. is old. <laughs> Right? It's, it's kind of fascinating and it relates to two other comments that were made, right? The, the home production of music, right? Which may not be high quality, but is important for people for expressive reasons, for example. And, 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 and woodcuts that uh, shift from communicative medium to artistic medium, right? What you said about photography, of course, the analog photography movement is quite huge in different countries, again, inter uh, internationally. And it's a form of art. And it's a form Just of like art, art, right? It's about aesthetic sensibility, and it's also about style. There's a whole other universe of meaning, right? That imperfections enable st stylistic variations, right? Imperfection enables emphasis on style. And there's whole literature, of course, on, on that and how it works. But yeah, this is, this is perfect. And of course, uh, what is particularly interesting, I think, with, with that parallel is the concept of noise, right? This uh, not <laughs> so finely noise. grained uh, uh, black and white uh, mm -hmm. prints. Wonderful, right? And some frame it, pro like noise in frame it properly, and it's like art almost by definition, <laughs> right? Why? Because it, it has certain con contrast with perfectly produced commercial images, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about advertising images, they're absolutely spotless to the point of becoming like unrealistic. They also frame our understanding of things. But at a certain point people are like, oh, this like noisy black and white photographs, they awesome. Like they have a certain it's style. It's poetic. There is a certain poetics to it. And it's the same with, uh, with analog records. People love... So right now some electronic producers... It's a ritual, like you said. Yeah, that's one thing, but also a certain atmosphere and certain style. So you have beat makers right now who produce music completely digitally with Ableton or other, um, other equipment, and they artificially add crackles, vinyl crackles, right? Because they think it adds atmosphere. So you could say it's kind of fake, but it recreates a certain kind of ambience. But you don't have to recreate it. You can just listen to vinyl. <laughs>
E as pessoas colaboraram aqui, a Aline, a Sabrina, né? Que ficaram aqui na, na nossa linha de fundo. Tá? Actually, we are embarking on the second project. Specifically, because we realized that I find people like that. And we had a presentation. 